When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Thurston Howard. And today we also have a third participant a very special guest mr dave lagana gentlemen how are you doing today i'm i'm delightful nice to chat with you both yeah i'm great rookie good good and uh you were just telling us dave off air that you just got back from uh memphis yeah i uh I, memphis is only a, a, a not too bad three hour drive from nashville and you know i'd met lance russell once or twice and i'd worked with jerry lawler when i was at wwe and then i kept in touch with jerry you know He's 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 a very unique person. I'll say that much. You know, uh, I, I like Jerry a lot because he's very honest with me, and it was very good to see him. Uh, I met Randy Hales for the first time, and also met Dave Brown for the first time, and you know, it was worth it. And I'd also never been to uh, the Mid South Coliseum, so I drove over there. It's in the worst part of town. Uh, thankfully, I went at two o'clock in the afternoon, and then on my way out of town, I stopped at Channel Five and never been there. And that's actually in a shockingly nice part of town of Memphis. So, I did the Memphis wrestling tour, uh, me and my camera, and I hope to put a video out in the next day or two, kind of showing that off. That sounds great, and uh, I imagine Jerry was all sorts of things there, but uh, he he seems to have been very very close to Lance and Lance's family, and very touched by you know the ability to uh, connect with them after all this time. Yeah, I, I didn't get to actually make the service. The service was uh, far earlier. It was, I think, at 11, and I would have had to have left here at the by 7 to make it, uh, and that just wasn't happening. So, uh, you know, I made it to the to Jerry's restaurant. He's got a, a, a nice little restaurant with a really cool museum uh, on Beale Street, and, you know, I met the family, and uh, they were talking about how, how nice – all the comments were that Jerry uh, said. I'm kind of disappointed nobody recorded it. Um, you know, uh, I think people would have really been into it. And, you know, I'm surprised actually the city of Memphis didn't do more uh, to celebrate Lance, considering how much local television he did over the years there for them. So I was kind of really surprised. 
we say it all the time. It's a changing media landscape, and yeah, uh, yeah. His, history disappears. Brandon, um, yes. Just before we get too deep in here, did you wrestle this past week? I I wrestled last night. Yeah, I, I wrestled one RJ City, and we had a good match. And uh, I was uh, defrauded of uh, the SW title, but that's another story for another time. Jeez, when what was the last wrestling show you were at, Dave? Um, that's an excellent question. Um. Oh, it was must. Yeah, it was two weeks ago. Championship wrestling from Hollywood. Uh, uh, when we did the uh, Tim Storm debut, that was the last one I was at. Very cool. Very cool. So you both have been at wrestling you much know, more recently than I have. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Um, Matt Conway and I talked about this. Like he hadn't gone to any wrestling. He left TNA in January, and I think he went to the Raw in Nashville in like six or seven months. And it's it's kind of weird when you go all the time and then you don't go. And when I was on the road with Billy. In January and February, I watched like no wrestling. I think I watched five minutes of Raw one night when we were somewhere in Texas, like Goliad, Texas. And because uh, I was waiting for my thing to upload, and I was that like it's weird when you take a break, and it's kind of hard to get back in. Well, and and that gives us kind of a nice opening here. You have been a lifelong wrestling fan, haven't you, for yes. uh, at least thirty years here, maybe more. I am forty-two. Um, sorry if my mic broke out about the age. Um, <laughs> I, I started watching wrestling in 1985, the very first match I ever saw. I talk about this a lot because it was it was like 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and I was watching Superstars, I think, and it was Wyndham and Rotunda versus the Dream Team of uh, Brutus Beefcake and Greg Valentine, and at 11 o'clock in the morning, I watched a man maim another man with a cigar, and I looked around <laughs> wondering what the hell I was watching. It was 10, and... Um, yeah, I was kind of hooked because you didn't you never saw that in the NFL. You didn't see that in baseball. And, you know, you're 10 years old and you see that level of violence in 1985 on on broadcast television. You know, we had cable. So, like, you know, we had cable. I'll just say that much. But, you know, this was something you didn't expect to see on uh, Channel 29 in Philadelphia. Was that Jimmy V's uh, cigar? Yes, it was. And uh, I wanted to. Uh, redo that same spot at one point with the Bashams, and if you remember good old Shaniqua, she used to smoke a cigar. Uh, that was the <laughs> Easter egg I put in, and we never got to do the angle. Instead, they ended up being uh, a bondage freaks. So I never got to do the ball in the ma- ball gag in the mouth spot either. So, so um, you're you're starting off as a fan in the '80s. Uh, you're growing up in New York, Jersey, uh, South Jersey, Philadelphia area. So like, I grew up. 12 minutes from the ECW arena and 15 minutes from the spectrum. So, yeah. And so I was going to say, so you, you, you seem like you're part of this group of fans that kind of came to age during the ECW revolution and, and becoming really interested in that style and, and all the things that were kind of going around at that yeah, time. I, I would would that be accurate? Was, yeah. I would say I was, I'm a, a general wrestling fan. I, I, I get painted with the Paul Heyman brush uh, pretty mm-hmm. hard by a lot of people. And, and trust me, Paul is one of the mentors I've had in the business. And I spent, uh, five years with him more than anybody uh, at WWE because, you know, he was my travel partner for a lot of television stuff and, you know, 3 a.m. rewriting SmackDown things. But I, I grew up a an NWA and WWE fan first, obviously, and it was that period, I think, if, if you're old enough, you remember 1991, 92, 93, when wrestling was kind of terrible, you know what I mean? Like, And for me, it was also the time that I was, like, finishing high school and going into college and really, the only way I followed wrestling um, was via 
uh, Meltzer's newsletter because the on, on I was on Prodigy in 1991. Yeah, weren't you posting? I know it's Google Groups now, but the uh, Usenet groups back in the day. Yeah, Rec Sports Pro Wrestling. I'm sure there are plenty of posts uh, floating around that I'm sure one day will pop up when I run for political office. Um, <laughs> will never happen and yeah i I, i've been posting online since 1990 i remember prodigy and i talked to bob Ryder about this prodigy used to not allow fantasy booking for some reason like you couldn't write fan fiction but i was writing accurate results of shows and it was getting pulled down and it was just like the most frustrating experience but yeah I've, i've been online uh talking wrestling with people like I've known Dave Shearer and Jeremy Borash and Bob Ryder and all these people since 1990. Lou D'Angeli, I used to trade tapes with Lou, mm-hmm. you know, became sign guy Dudley and then obviously worked at WWE and now he works at Cirque du Soleil. So it's it's weird all these people I've known for a long – I mean Dave Prezak. I, I picked up Dave Prezak in 1995 to go to ECW arena shows um, and Dave wore – if you go look at some of those summer ECW shows, you see my giant head – and you see Dave Prezak wearing a shirt, shirt and tie when it was like 95 degrees in the ECW arena in the bleachers. So, <laughs> someone tell progress. Yes. Um, uh, so yeah. So uh, yes, I, I I loved ECW. It got me back into it uh, in the summers that I was in college. It was ironically enough, I used to do video work for for a comedy group at my college, Emerson College, and their initials were ECW. So I used to uh, bring. Emerson Comedy Workshop shirts down for like Stevie Richards and some of the guys, and then some of the Comedy Workshop guys wore like a Sandman T-shirt at, at these things. So it's <laughs> it, it was very weird and surreal and all that stuff. So you know, ECW definitely was uh, it, it reignited it, but obviously you know it led to a lot of stuff. And even in the mid '90s, I was so busy with college and stuff, I still kept up. But you know, there was no Twitter then, so like. You were kind of just a guy that was watching stuff on your own, and if you had a friend or two, you could talk to them online, but not to obviously at the fervorance that we can do now. Yeah, and so you know, you're just mentioning, oh, you know, I got to meet Randy Hills for the first time, and people like that. Were those people you were, you know, watching Memphis wrestling on tapes, or were you just reading about it at the time? Um, so I was obviously tape trading, and then I'm not sure uh, where you guys are, but for some reason, where I lived in New Jersey. We got a lot of everything. There was this Channel America or something, and I was talking to Jerry and Randy about this yesterday. We used to get USWA, and like like it was weird. Like it was like that and a bunch of other stuff. We got world class in the mid uh, the mid eighties. We got uh, UWF. We got like everything. One, at one point, my dad counted. He goes, "You watch like fifteen hours of wrestling a week," and I was like, "Yeah," and. And just he, it was just funny, you know what I mean? Like I was, and it's now it's like everyone's like, oh, there's so much wrestling. There was as much wrestling in the '80s on television if you could figure it out between all the cable shows. You know, USA used to have a bunch of shows. You know, they had, and the same with TBS. And yeah, I mean, even in the early days of USA, they were even showing like Texas wrestling and stuff like that. Yeah, that was uh, the Joel uh, Lock. No, uh, Joel. That was uh, Tully Blanchard's dad. Was the, yeah, the Lock- Joel Blanchard. Joel Blanchard. Oh, Blanchard. Yeah. yeah. You know, but and then yeah, I, there's all, I, all these groups that were running on cable at the time. And again, you have to remember, cable then, you know, was a very limited universe. So um, it's funny when you when you go back and look and you hear about the ratings they were doing. Then you look at the actual number of households. You know, it's like, oh, the, the Clash did a 9.8 rating, and it was four million people watched it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, yeah. like every time everybody talks about the ratings uh, decline since. Uh, uh, since the 80s and 90s, you have to look at the households. 
So, and and also by the way, on my Facebook feed, Bobby Lashley wants to make sure I mention him, and so does Rockstar Spud. So I'm mentioning Bobby Lashley and Rockstar Spud, which I don't think I ever booked that match. One day maybe I will book that match. Sorry, guys. No, no, that would be a fun match. I think. Uh, I think there's sometimes there's all those fun. You know, we talk about the indie superstar awesome matches that we we you know you do get to see or you don't get to see. But I think there's a lot of fun. You know, weird mixing of the heavyweights and the cruiserweights that you don't necessarily get to see much anymore either. Yeah. You know, well, Brian Metalik versus Brock Lesnar. I, do, I, was, I always joke with uh, Spud and EC3 that they are the Lawler and Dundee of this generation. So, so uh, as, as we're talking about all these hours of wrestling, all these types of wrestling, um, you as a fan kind of taking it all in, has, has American wrestling been more your game than, say, Japanese or Mexican? Or as, have you really wanted to uh, – would you say that you've, you've studied all of them? I watched, you know, obviously with the WCW Super Shows, you kind of get your feet wet with New Japan. I used to trade tapes. I remember sending ECW tapes to people. I remember getting the SWS show that Hogan was on uh, with the Road Warriors, and that match kind of blew my mind for like, like what? Is, what? Why? Well, the, I can't imagine why this is happening and where and all this stuff. But you know, I would do a limited. It, you know, think about now when you want to look up something, you go on YouTube. The amount of effort you'd have to do to get tape trading you know what i mean like it was it was a thing so i watched a, a good amount of japanese but not like at, at i would say at the Meltzer level you know what i mean is of like you know i have still have a large collection of vhs tapes in my parents basement next to all my laser discs which i know chris wants um so <laughs> well, you, like, you bring it up i'm only about six years younger than you and so okay. i remember even into the mid-2000s it was hard to find video sites that you could upload clips that were several minutes long for free you know until youtube came around it was it was very difficult and there's a lot of upload and things like that yeah and then they would go down and you'd have to start over again and it was it was i remember us showing vince what was the thing after napster it was morpheus it was a a a file sharing thing it was 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 one right after napster limewire bear share yeah but this was like morpheus this was even before those and i remember one of the writers pulling up he was able to download Rock versus Austin from WrestleMania 19 in 20 minutes, which, again, is hilarious now to hear. And Vince was like, what the hell? How can they do that? And it was 2003 or 2004, and it was just kind of uh, it was just kind of a thing. You know what I mean? And I remember bringing up YouTube. Uh, I think the Mark Henry cage door incident was like the first thing that ever kind of popped up on YouTube in 2005. And they went crazy. They got to get it down. You got to take it down. And they'd never wanted to use youtube in the very early days that i was like i was there until 2008 and youtube was a dirty word you know they used to have i think it was howard finkel or somebody go through youtube and take all the wwe content down early um i'm trying to remember what year they accepted it but i mean they were they were late to the twitter game and then when they got in on it it just it was almost nauseating so um but anyway so yeah it's 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 interesting how technology has kind of uh Wrestling's always late to the game. I'll just say that much. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I will even say now, and obviously I know this is a much larger discussion we'll get into, I, I think wrestling's stuck in about 2011, 2012 as far as their digital game. Um, and very few people are in, in 2017, let alone looking forward. Well, that's that's something I was wanted to talk to you about was kind of the world of wrestling and how it interacts with other media today. You know, we're seeing examples where people are becoming these YouTube superstars and then they're getting developmental deals. And, you know, like Insecure with uh, I, I think it's Issa Rae. She she's, you know, really exploded this year on HBO doing great 
things. And we've mm-hmm. seen the other case where we've seen networks begin to ally with content creators. So, you know, uh, Kirkman and The Walking Dead, I think, making a deal. I think it was Amazon and people like that. And that's intriguing to me to see that, you know, we're seeing this alignment of these big companies kind of trying to find these creators and then get them in their camp. And I wonder in wrestling, do we – are we seeing people break out themselves by being social media superstars or being really good producers today? Or are we seeing, you know, still the media companies kind of choosing the winners in your mind? Well, it, it's really hard. If, you, if you're in the WWE, your contract doesn't allow you to experiment that way. You know, when I worked at WWE, they had right of first refusal of anything I wrote. And they had up to a year to hold it. So if I wrote a love, love note to a girlfriend, she wouldn't get it for a year. You know, <laughs> bad joke, but uh, thankfully uh, it didn't actually happen. But, you know, the like they are very protective of their IP. They've spent a lot of money on it. So, you know, you look at that. I mean, look at Zack Ryder. If Zack Ryder, and I've said this privately, and if Zack Ryder would have continued his YouTube show in 2011, think about it, six years ago, he was he beat Logan Paul to the punch six years in advance. And, you know, the Young Bucks are having... And great success you know even kevin steen was doing a youtube show back in the day and again cabana said it some of these guys aren't the first but the key is executing you know do your core right i was listening to an interview with reed hastings who's the uh founder of netflix netflix and he yeah and he was talking about why they won and they just executed their core right they delivered dvds on time like that was literally why they won and beat blockbuster they just did a service really well and I think if you start there from that core, you know, you can be actually very successful in, in really any business and especially digital. And that's why those YouTube guys, I mean, I would say even now YouTube's 12 years old, it's still amateurs. You know what I mean? Because they threw a lot of money at very pro creators. But the problem is, is you don't really want super professional stuff on YouTube. You want niche programming that is uh, searchable and and fuels the rabbit hole. You know what I mean? Like – like I, I, I told Jerry and Randy, I, I said, I went down the Memphis ra- rabbit hole the last week. I watched 15 hours of Memphis footage on YouTube because it's there. It's the only place you can find it. Yeah. So, like, you have to create in this medium for that if you're not a giant media conglomerate. And I don't think it really works the other way because you have overhead and all that stuff. If you're a media conglomerate, you have to pay for 200 people, 2,000 people. You have to pay for this giant business that the the margins on online don't really – don't really do well. So I think it's fascinating too to see how as as the monetization model on things like YouTube have changed with streaming, how we see these other services kind of filling the gap. So, you know, right now Patreon is yep. you, you see so many YouTube pages that are saying, okay, go to my Patreon and support what I'm doing here. And it's in some ways it's intriguing. It's almost like YouTube missed the boat, right? Because they yes. didn't create that that service the way eBay and PayPal kind of bundled together and kind of said hey it's okay to sell digital currency you will get your products it works and um twitch you know in some ways has done a little bit closer of being able to figure out okay we're going to monetize and we're going to stream and we're going to do this and you see youtube almost ripping it off and so like anything else it's it's amazing to me to see how media streaming services and whatnot you know one of them's on top for a few years and then they start to kind of lose their foot a little bit as somebody else figures out those things that they're missing or the things that annoy the people that are on that service the most. And so I'll ask you, Dave, as a, a prophet of the future, do you think five years from now YouTube is going to be bigger than it is now, or do you think it's going to be seeding ground to some other services? Well, it, it's interesting because it, 
I don't remember what it was called, but Google had their own video sharing service. Yeah, Google Video. That's yeah. it was simple oh, yeah, as that. Right. Yeah. yeah, I used it. It was lo- I mean, it was great because you could upload long clips, but no one used it. The the key is is and look at any really good innovation. It usually happens outside of the the giant conglomerates. You know, Netflix. You know, was invented outside of Blockbuster. You know, there's the famous story that they were offered fifty million dollars to buy out and join their company, and Blockbuster said, "No, we got it." Yeah. You know, and and a lot of really good innovation. It, it's really smart people. Like when you see the people at the core that do these giant innovations, and uh, I talk about Gary Varnerchuk a lot, and he talks about betting on the jockey, not the horse. So yes, uh, online video in 2005, as as we all just discussed, was a huge thing, but. YouTube got it right. And then obviously the partnership with uh, Google really helped because that's the secret sauce. You know, if you do YouTube right, which I will say 75 to 90 percent of the people in pro wrestling don't do it right. The only people who feel like are doing it right are the people taking podcasts and putting them on YouTube and optimizing the search based on words. Like you can go down the Jim Cornette rabbit hole and it's all based upon words and the guy that doesn't, I haven't even really dove, dove deep into his meta tagging and stuff if he's even doing it correct. You know, there, there, there's a lot of really somewhat free pieces of software that can help you optimize your videos. I used one to optimize my Galloway documentary and the first four days at about 11,000 views on a very tiny YouTube channel that I have, you know, all word of mouth passed around. But when Drew won the title, I made sure the tagging worked around his NXT thing. So when people were looking up Drew Galloway or Drew McIntyre NXT, I made sure in all those tags, my video popped up and I did 17,000 views overnight, you know, on that video. So it's all based around search. It's not how big a star you are. It's if you're smart enough to get the search, like the uh, wrestling with a regret guy, Brian Zane, like he makes lots of great videos around different subjects. So if you search Halloween Havoc 1996, He's got a video, and because his channel is so well-subscribed, it usually gets recommended. So if you think that large, you can obviously get into that search and build a brand, but you're not going to make $5 a view on any of those videos. You have to think broader and think branding. What's your take in terms of the end goal for a lot of this? Do you think a lot of people need to be more focused on making money for themselves or to find other avenues where the conglomerate itself is making the money. So is it the creator is, you know, making the money off the YouTube views or is it they're being hired by the professional studio to, you know, kind of go on to the next thing in your mind? Well, I think, I think there's two and Billy and I talk about this a lot and, you know, he's been, he's been right more times than wrong in this space. You know, you find interviews in 2005, he talks about streaming being the future and people will stop buying albums, you know, and, and, you know, Whatever saves people's time will always be the thing that makes it better. So pay-per-view was better because I didn't have to go to Greensboro or Chicago to watch a pay-per-view. I could watch it from my house and cheaper. Um, So if you use that as the template – so if you're a content creator, okay, great. No one's making millions of dollars. But if you take the time to build your own individual brand, that's the other thing. Like you see these giant brands cratering and dying because – if you're really smart, you can sell T-shirts on Instagram, you know, build your own brand that way. I mean, look at the Young Bucks. Look what Cabana's done. You know, they're not they're not Perry Ellis. They're not, you know, there's giant fashion brands, but they're making money doing selling shirts. You know what I mean? There's no real difference. So if you're an individual creator, you have to figure out and hack culture and understand that just sending a link out on Twitter isn't isn't going to get it done. You know what I mean? I think too many people base their business on 140 characters and don't realize – 
you know, a podcast is great. Well, maybe I don't want to have a full podcast. Well, I don't want to figure it out. Great. Try Anchor. You can publish a podcast from there and really do it from your phone. Uh, or, okay, I don't I don't know how to edit video. Well, the Young Bucks figured out how to shoot their show on their iPhone and edit on their iPhone. I think as a, a single creator, you want to create a very uh, simple brand that's easy to understand, that fans can attach to, that you're no, you don't have your hand out at every interaction. You know what I mean? I think that, to me, is what I'm looking to do is and, – and I think Billy said in the Sports Illustrated article, we don't want to build a paywall that 4,000 people are behind, which, by the way, as you guys are smart enough to know, nobody's doing 4,000 people behind a paywall except New Japan and WWE. You know, So if you look at that, you want to shoot bigger yeah, because – I would guess on, maybe progress is close to that, but yeah. Yeah, but they're, but they're shutting down. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, you're, they're, WWE bought them out as far as their content. Their, their, their service will go away. But I, and I, I don't know, and, and maybe they are more. But you know, four thousand people in a subscription service in wrestling is great. But I mean, if you look at the world, it's tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. You know what I mean? What What role do you think the brick and mortar still has? Because you know, we talk about the young bucks here, but you know, Hot Topic getting their shirts in was a big deal because it it created a distribution to all these malls around America and to a new fan base and to different people that you might not even have a clue what the young bucks are, but are 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 understanding the brand and and buying into it with Bullet Club. And I wonder about that. And sometimes that we we exist so digitally. And we can sometimes underrate the live experience of, A, the show itself. And we know from WWE and from New Japan and from a thousand others, mer- live merch is huge. Yep. And then, B, just there is a value to the physical presence and the physical objectivity of things. You know, what, one reason you see things like vinyl coming back or, or Chris Harrington buying a laser disc in 2017. It, it's, it's interesting to own a physical object these days. So I, I'm curious what your thoughts are as that intersects with the real world as well. I think brick and mortar will always exist, you know, VR, you know, every Christmas I feel like we see a thousand commercials for VR headsets and then a month later nobody's using them because it's 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 it, VR is 1993 internet, 1995 internet. Slow, nobody's using it, all that stuff. Lawnmower man, baby. Of course, you know, I think we all remember that and I think we're still about there. You know, and and again, it's all very niche, but brick and mortar why did Amazon just buy Whole Foods? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like brick and mortar works. It's it's all about the experience. And like to me, that's the most frustrating thing when I go to a wrestling show and they don't think about the experience of the fan. I, I went to a couple and these guys spent 45 minutes talking to me about their great booking. And the building was literally falling apart. It smelled like, like the Black Plague. And the parking lot was looked like it was in Beirut. And I was like, they're never going to get to your booking. I would if, – if my father was to bring this – bring me to this show in 1987 and I'm 12 years old and the parking lot looked, he, would, he wouldn't have gone in. You have to understand that you have to give an experience. Look at Whole Foods. You know, when you go to a Whole Foods, it looks like an experience you want. You know, it's always you dress for the job you want as I sit here in uh, black uh, shorts and a black T-shirt and a backwards Ring of Honor hat. Um, you know – um, but like, like the experience works. And I don't know if you saw those articles about cinema is dead. It was the worst summer ever. And then literally, literally the next weekend, it does the largest opening for a horror movie in history. People was, want a strong experience. They don't just want to go to a movie and, and think about it. Why did the movies not do good this summer? I would argue it's mainly because they didn't create the content people wanted to go out and see. Exactly. And, and now the choice, again, time and money there's so much that I'd like 
okay, now if you go to movies week after week after week and there are great movies, then great. I will go to the movies every day. Eric Young and I live very close to each other, and there's a movie theater that they put recliners in. They'll bring you booze. They've got the experience right. But the product still stinks. You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. I love movies. When I when I was a kid, that was what I wanted to do. Like I used to watch the Oscars and go, fuck, I want to be out like that's what I want to do. Now it's it's not interesting because it's 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 just not the same. I'd rather make a video every day that pushes my creativity every day because that to me is a new challenge and nobody's really hit it hard yet. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people on YouTube doing it, but like it's such the wild west, and that's why I use that term when I left TNA is because, you know, everybody's still chasing this giant conglomerate deal when, like, like big media companies aren't going to fall, but they'll just keep getting bought out. That's why I shared that um, that last week tonight piece about corporate consolidation, and and look what WWE has done. They basically have consolidated two of the biggest indies in in England. You know, they have a deal with Gabe, and they've gone ahead and 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 built out a thing where if you're an indie guy, what do you do now? You go to NXT. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's interesting the world we live in. So as far as brick and mortar, I think, I think we will always want to go places and do things. I think that will never change because eventually we get tired of our house. We get tired of looking at our girlfriend or boyfriend. We get tired of being in our, our normal place and people will always want to spend money to go do things. The, if Netflix, like I could see Netflix buying a theater chain. But really doing the experience right where, for example, you could crowdsource the movie you want to see at a local place. Think about how many movies run empty. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Theater like – But if I I've, I've started to see that. I mean I, I remember I went to a screening of an SNL doc and it was basically the theater said if we can get 100 people to buy tickets, we'll screen this movie. And, yes. and, and we're seeing a lot more of that right now for sure. And I think that's, that's the kind of stuff that – that's the – out of the box thinking that one nobody's doing in wrestling and and two nobody in media it's hard because obviously you have to get market share but these incubation and i use that word about what we're doing with the nwa and i was like well when are you gonna run shows and you know you have to do television no i don't i don't have to do anything i have a guy that's happy to fund a brand and make very smart bets on very smart ideas and and there's no expectations and i'm sorry that if people want us to be Something that I don't think would work nowadays. You know what I mean? Like chasing a cable television deal as the as the holy grail is not the right approach. Building a smart media company from the ground up and trying new stuff. Like look at Tesla. And I use this example a lot and I want people to vomit on it because so, I want them to understand. Elon Musk is, a, is one of the smartest humans on the earth. And he is probably one of the more awkward people to watch talk. If Elon Musk would have been hired by Vince McMahon, he would have been run out of the company five minutes into the company because Vince wouldn't have liked how he spoke. But he's created a very smart car company. He's created a, a rocket company. Like there was a story a week ago where he's like, what if you could take a rocket from New York to, to London and it get you there in 30 minutes for the same price as an airline ticket? Like that – like – and guess what? He'll probably do it. Is it tomorrow? No, but like that's the kind of leaps forward people should be looking. Or you can just open another airline and charge bag fees. You know what I mean? Like that's that's where we're at as a culture. And you you either in one you're either in one camp or the other. And I like being in the Elon Musk ca- uh, uh, category. So let's go back just for a second where you're sure. talking about content. And this this brings up the interesting question: You have the network; it launches; it has all these hours of old content yet predictably 
only the new content seems to be the driving factor for subscriber growth and for most watched every week. As you are managing a brand now, you're managing also uh, uh, some rights to a library, I believe, and other things. Is your thought it's better to connect people with good content, be it old or be it new, and possibly reformatting it in a way to make it accessible? Or is it better to focus more on new, 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 new? I think it's it's a mixture of both. But, you know, the NWA on-demand thing that Bruce Tharp set up. You know, the Houston Library is amazing. I don't know if I've talked to you guys about it. I've looked at about 30 to 40% of it. You know, I have 12 uh, two-terabyte drives in my house, and I've gone through a good amount of it. And I've looked at it. There's some really good stuff, but there's not a lot of context. You know what I mean? Like, they're not finished shows. They're, they're arena show matches with some interviews. I think there's an audience. David Bixenspan is somebody that is dying to see everything that's in this library, but there's only so many David Bixenspans in the world. Um, you know, you have to – why was 30 for 30 uh, so successful? Because it told really good stories. So, for example, the past is the past, but if you can tell it in a new way, you know, it's really – it's really important to understand that thing. You know, and when WWE does really good documentaries or stories, I think people will watch it. Like watching the Medusa documentary about the title belt and how it affected her and all that stuff, to me, is the right use of historical footage. The ability to go watch that Nitro, the promo is – it's fine. It's a minute promo that happened on a show 20 years ago. It's You have to understand its context and how people – uh, digest stuff. And that's what I mean. So like what you said was exactly right. You know, there's all that stuff on the network. And again, I don't have access to the data, but you're right. People want, they want to live in the now. Cause if you think about it, we're the eight, the, the WWE's audience is people over 45. You could say older, you know, I don't know if you're a 12 year old kid, do you care about the Monday Night War? You don't know what it is. It's like your yeah. grandparents talking about World War II. You know what I mean? That's, like That's what I've said a lot about when they go into these other countries like India and China is that they, they have no context or interest in this wrestling history. And so, yeah, maybe Andre Especially the if it's seems, not curated for them and it's not put yes. out there, which at least WWE is starting to do with their collections. They kind of are starting to put together playlists. But a lot of that stuff is, we know, they've got thousands and thousands of hours on the network that you just – where do you begin if you've never – if you didn't grow up watching Nitro or something like that. Yeah, and you have to remember, this is all um, shared memories. There's a word Billy uses. Um, like, 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 for his, like, for example, the pumpkins. Um, you know, all the people's feelings are from 1992 to 1998. So, you know, they, they don't really – they may not digest his newest stuff. Like his new album that comes out next week – uh, and I don't mean that as a cheap plug, is amazing. I, I heard it a lot, obviously, when we were traveling and obviously the finished version. But it's 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 his creative journey now. And it's different than it was in the 90s. So if you're only a fan of him in the 90s, you may check it out and you may like it or not. But every, generational memories, that's the thing. So like all these bands that are touring now, most of the bands that are touring now are not the originals. It's it's like this person but without the guitarist. So you have to understand like this 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 memory thing that we have you know, if you have no memory of it, you know, if I mentioned to a 15 year old, I'm working with Billy Corgan, they go, who? Oh, I, and then they hear the song and they're like, oh, OK, I know that song. You know what I mean? You have to understand these audiences shift. So as far as us managing the NWA going forward, yes, we bought a brand that's been around since 1948. We have a library that tells a little bit of it. And obviously there's all this history in the WWE um, archives and on their networks and they're running war games and they're running Starcade. you know, like. There's all this stuff out there, but without context, 
Like where if you want to learn about Starcade, where do you go? The network? Great, that's behind a paywall. YouTube? There's tell me there's a great Starcade documentary out there. There's not. You know what I mean? Like that that there, there's a wealth of great stories if you want to tell it. Like I was I was listening to the Crockett documentary that the Kickstarter thing did. There's a lot of really good interviews. I don't think it's a a strong narrative piece. It's just it's just interviews slammed together, but there's no narrative to it, but at least it gives you some context on the history. So I think there's a great opportunity in this space right now to tell really good stories. Like I think there is room in the marketplace for really well-produced podcasts, kind of what Bruce is doing, but with more than just Bruce. You know what I mean? Like a well-produced, okay, we're going to talk about SummerSlam 96, but it's just not Bruce. It's a bunch of people. But again, it takes work. You can't get on a podcast at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and just chat through it. It requires a little production. It reminds me a lot of the oral history articles that you're reading yes. these days on sports sites or on on movie sites where they're they're going back and revisiting things and it, it's it's like writing a book, right? There's so yeah. much archiving and history that you have to do to go research it and you have to cobble it together. I think is the problem is that it's almost impossible to have a free flowing conversation that actually hits all the points in a narrative and a, a charismatic and dramatic arcs unless it's a play that you've actually practiced or it's a one man show. Yes, it's it's so hard. And it's interesting. So as you think about kind of the brand that you have now, not everyone is around from that era, but not Not everyone is gone either. So in your mind, do you see there's some opportunities to connect with the people that were involved with, you know, the NWA brand or other wrestling brands from that era and capture what they're saying? Or do you think the stories have been captured and told? I don't I think. They haven't because think about when when Vince bought WCW, you know, they put out a full horseman DVD. They put out a, you know, this and that. But there's always more stories like the the good thing for us. Yes, we don't have the footage. I hear that every day. Um, But if you can create compelling stories, why can't you take a Arn Anderson back to one of the locations that, you know, something historical happened? And shoot new, you know what I mean? Him walking into the Norfolk Scope for the first time or the Greensboro Coliseum. And, but instead of just a sit-down interview, make it a thing. You know what I mean? There, there's, there's ways to leverage this history to tell stories that people are familiar with or not across varying different things. So, you know, one of the approaches that I'm looking at is multimedia approach. So, for example, uh, I hate that word. It just doesn't feel right anymore. But you take an Arn Anderson to the Greensboro Coliseum. You know, you shoot all day with him. You know, you, you you build out a story of that, but then it becomes a chopped up pieces of 17 podcasts. It becomes seven written articles. It becomes seven things for seven different video projects. Because why does a documentary need to be two hours? Why can't it be three minutes? You know what I mean? I think the daily vlog has shown that people want to digest shorter form things. I was blown away that people watched all 22 minutes of the Galloway thing. I was blown away by it. You know, the the clickouts were either the first minute or they stayed the whole time. And like so to me that said, oh, this is longer than I want. I'll come back. But the completion rate was way higher than the average on YouTube. So I think people make a decision. You just have to decide if the subject is worth your time. So with, with, the, with the Galloway documentary, did you ever consider breaking it up into like three minute segments or something like that? I did, uh, I think, and, and you know, I, I struggled with it because, you know, it was a very personal story. And, you know, uh, full disclosure, you know, when, when we started the NWA discussions in February, you know, Drew was a perfect candidate to be the NWA world champion. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, his road to WWE was, was a better 
path for him in this time. And, you know, and I have a great relationship with Drew. So the shot, the, the, the shoot with Drew was never supposed to be what it was. You know, uh, it was really a test shoot to see could this format exist up on its feet. So, for example, I think we will obviously need to have a live event television show where that airs or how it airs or what airs is wide open. But I feel like there's a gap, a huge gap in the marketplace, meaning uh, Raw ends at 11.05 every Monday. Tell me the last great story that was told digitally by WWE. I'll wait. You know what I mean? Like, like, like multimedia, like guy leaves the building. It's, it's deep. It's like, it, they just don't execute that way. It's not their fault. Their system is built that way to, you know, Vince approves the show and then he changes his mind on stuff. You can't, you can't put the resources behind it. Now they do great documentaries, but I think we would all agree. They, they get about 60% of the way there, you know, and I'm not saying you have to break kayfabe in them, but like there's, there's real emotion or like the flair documentary that's coming out next month. That thing's been shot two years ago. You know, there, there's a lack of – like think about what's happened to Flair in the last year. Now, I, I'm assuming that the director has updated some of it. But, you know, I think there's a speed and narrative. Like I could have put the Galloway documentary out two days after, you know, it, it finished. But I, I decided to kind of wait and see where Drew's time went with WWE. And so when he was going for the title, I could have done six little small pieces. But a, a story like that that had such a good beginning, middle, and end – you know, I, I wanted to I wanted it as one piece. And if people digest it in, in separate pieces, that's fine. But, you know, I could go back and make smaller pieces, which is, again, the right point. Do you, do you feel that we have the right ability to have the creative people and the experts in the same area? In the sense I'm saying, sometimes there's areas where people are really great at creating a, pro, a, a creative production, but they don't have the expertise about the subject matter. And so it's almost like it would be great if we had those archivists and historians and writers and and people that are pitching those stories in a, to the creative people to either form them into the fully formed storytelling or in and at least filling in the details in a way that's helpful. Or do you think it's it's much better to have that labor of love of the one the one man band sort of thing? I, I think it's you know Hollywood is a very good system because you know there's this that and the other, but where it lacks is. You know, I've talked to former WWE writers, people, and you know, friends who've pitched movies. The system is inherently broken because you have agendas. It's very much like wrestling. Oh, this is a passion project of mine. Well, the studio doesn't want to put this money behind it. You know, now in a much smaller system, like I, I would say, I'm decent at shooting and editing. It's I, I'm not a cinematographer. I you know have a background in it, but I have a great eye for story and and composition. You know, obviously, I think there are way better videographers and shooters and editors that exist. I'm, 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 I, I consider myself passable to good. Um, I just, it's just not what I do every day. So like for me, I love working with really smart shooter, editor, documentary people. That's not even a word, but I'll, I'll Michael Hayes it. Um, and you know, like, like I, for, for the NWA to grow, I cannot shoot and edit everything. It's just, it just won't happen. Billy and I talked about that yesterday. You know, it, we're going to need to find smart people that can shoot and edit. Like I get emails all the time. Hey, I'd love to be on creative for the NWA. Great. Is, is all you do is just pitch ideas? Can you shoot? Can you edit? Can you write? Can you take amazing photos? Like to me, that to me is the barrier of entry now to be creative in any environment. You know what I mean? Just having, well, it'd be great if you did this with this guy on this date with this finish. That is so like you could have the greatest book dusty roads from 1985 could come back and book tna and it wouldn't solve their problem 
you know, they have a, they have an infrastructure problem. They have a storytelling problem. Just like you need to tell a really strong narrative that people are interested in. And so for me, I think there are smart people. You know, I've engaged both of you and asked a lot of questions of like, what would you want to see? How would you want to see it? When would you want to see it? You know, like I think you're, people are asking the wrong questions. They're worried about a line of dialogue or this finish, which, by the way, is very important. But you have to understand that there's a huge audience of people not watching. You have to wonder what they're watching, how they're watching it, and where they're watching it. Like nobody is creating content for musically in the pro wrestling business. And I keep bringing that up, and everyone looks at me like, why would I create there? Because it has the largest audience of 8 to 14-year-olds of any platform right now. And by the way, what age were we all when we started watching wrestling? Usually in that age, yeah. Yeah. So, so – like, I remember telling Marty Bell this a, a year ago. I said, Marty, you've got the personality that lip syncing would be fun. I said, if you could go on there and hack it and figure it out, you might just be the first wrestling musically star. And by the way, you may not. But I'd rather figure that out than try and pitch Spike TV, a wrestling show, when they're going to want 75% ownership of a company because that's the way they do business now. And when you, when, you have to, when you have to sell for a media company like that, then you lose power and then you become what you become. The completest in me does want to remind everyone that there is Van Hammer karaoke on YouTube. So I'd watch the hell out of that. It's it exists. It really exists. Karaoke. What, what, um, what songs is he singing? I don't know. I just it, it's referred to as Van Hammer gets drunk and sings karaoke, and and apparently he's done this several times. Like there's uh, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of different stuff. Like there's this thing called Hooted or Hooked. It was a texting story. Like you could write stories in text form. So like like if if you like imagine writing a text conversation and, and telling a narrative that's interesting you know what I mean like mm-hmm. like there, there there's plenty of ways to create and you're gonna like, well wrestling fans aren't there but you have to make new fans and if you're creative enough you don't have to be a booker you don't have to be a writer on a creative team you can go find like look what uh, Giancarlo and and uh, Joey Janela did last year. You know, they created a whole show based around one vignette, and they built a brand of Joey Janela's Spring Break, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, off of one idea. Yeah. If and those it guys, sounds like they're going to try and make it even bigger next year. Yeah, but but there's no reason that they couldn't have continued that narrative. I called them both before. I was like, you got an opportunity here. You know, and, and obviously I've become close with them, and, you know, uh, you have to just – you have to – yeah, once a year is great, but you they had a chance that they could continue that thing forward. You know what I mean? Like, it's just – Time and resources. Let's talk markets then. So we live in this era where everyone's like, oh, it's a worldwide market. Everyone's watching. But reality is the money for wrestling, at least, has been centered in a few places for both either where the wrestling fans are or where the uh, broadband Internet support is or, you know, infrastructure of television and whatnot. So we see the U.S. obviously being really big. Canada continuing to to do well the uk has really emerged in the last few years here it's always had a lot of wrestling fans but now has a lot more self-produced content and then you have questions about you know the far east and asia and australia and mexico and latin america especially latin america which has just exploded and i i sometimes feel like they're very underserved because of the language barrier Mm -hmm. uh to the american market but where are you thinking for as you're focusing with your brand here is this a brand that you're gonna think is gonna monetize and build fans mainly in America or I mean it's easy to say yeah we're going to go worldwide but what are you thinking for the major markets I think it's and the reason I love you guys so much is you're a data driven you know content play you you guys look at, at data that nobody else looks at 
you guys don't sit and review Raw like the 73,000 other podcasts that exist because, one, it's a gap in the market, and, and data is very important. I remember talking to a couple of promoters. I'm like, well, do you do Facebook ads? They're like, we do Facebook. I'm like, show me what you do. And I said, posting a poster on your Facebook page isn't doing Facebook right. That We live in a data world that um, you can market, for example, the Galloway documentary. I spent a small amount of money to test market. I leveraged Drew Galloway's Facebook page in the UK, uh, NXT fans, and um, a certain amount. I think I spent like $20. And, you know, the data I got back in the UK and in Scotland, you know, you can market a piece of content against an audience in a location anywhere you want. And you, you, you do that smart marketing based upon data you get back. YouTube gives you all the information you need. And that's why everyone was like running away from YouTube last year. Yes, they, they, they changed the monetization for everybody. And it, it came back. But the amount of data you get from YouTube, if you're a smart person to understand, is amazing. The same with Facebook. I, I openly recommend this guy named uh, Nick Cicero and a company called Del Mondo. They help Billy and I, and I, I tweet about him all the time, so it's not like he's some secret sauce that I'm hiding behind a door. You know, He does Instagram and Snapchat analytics. Now, it's his business. You have to pay for it. Um, but like, there's these companies out there that are, that are actively figuring out uh, data and you know where you can create. So, for example, the um, the small little piece I put up on Tim Storm, I'm blown away that it did 8,000 views in two days for a 30 second video. Like, like to me that shows, huh? Interesting. So when I go into the YouTube and see where all those viewers are, now I'm starting to build sort of a an interesting context of where the eyes are, and it cost me nothing. You know what so I mean? Now. Go ahead. You, I was going to say, so so media is is had to evolve in a lot of these ways, and wrestling media, I think, has been very slow to evolve. So my question to you would be, as you talk about all this content and analytics mm -hmm. and data-driven ability we have, do you think big media has figured it out when it comes to anything from newspapers to videos to television channels? And then yep. do you think wrestling media has figured it out? No. Everything's behind a paywall. It, it, the best is people criticizing our play that we're going to do. By behind a paywall that they have a, a thousand, maybe a thousand subscribers behind. Maybe. And it's fine. This is, these are people's individual businesses, and I understand it. Trust me. I, if, if, if I had to figure this out, and again, I, I, I will raise my hand and say, yes, I have a, I have a, I have a very well-known person that has the money to invest in this idea. And, and I understand everyone has to do their own business and um, create on their own. But there are plenty of free ways to – again, I'll, I'll use the Cornette YouTube channel. You know, Cornette does a podcast. I think it's Brian Last that does it with them. They chop it up and they figured out a way to spread the 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 information and data across what works. So I think wrestling has been super slow. I mean, like like molasses, like quicksand, slow to adapt. Like, yeah, you know, I understand guys make money going to shows, selling T-shirts, and all that stuff. But the young bucks actually work less now and are building their brand more on a weekly. YouTube show. I told them if they want to, if they want to hack and they want to, they want, I said, try a week where you make a video every day. It'll suck and you'll hate yourselves. I did 30 videos in 30 days for Billy. And at about day 23, I just, I hit a wall because it's just like you, you're in front of your computer every minute of the day also while shooting. But there, there's a way that you can, because people are hungry for it. Look at, look when Cody Rhodes sent something out yesterday about his father and war games. He goes, I know once I put this out, it's going to become clickbait headlines across 37 websites. 
<laughs> and the, the, but but the thing is, is you can control the narrative if you um, if you do it right. I remember we did a video after Eddie Guerrero won the title uh, in two thousand four, two thousand three, whatever year that was, and he went and called Vicky. And it was one of my favorite pieces of content we made. And, and the world had to wait, I think, till Thursday or it was like a DVD extra. Like now, if that went up online, like I feel like nobody uses Periscope correctly. I feel like, you know, the, the live stuff, if it's right. Like I went to yesterday to uh, Mid-South Coliseum and I live streamed from there for a minute. Now, that content can go in a bunch of different places. But that there I was in that moment. And I didn't want to wait six weeks to put it up. I didn't want to put it on a, a behind a paywall two weeks from now or five minutes from now. I was living it now, and the ability to do that should it should excite people. It should, and I, I don't know why in wrestling it doesn't. How many wrestlers do you see using that to talk people into the building? None. Be, and, and Facebook is giving you preferential visibility too, because and when, when you have a page on Facebook, like for your business. Every post that you make doesn't necessarily get seen by every one of your followers, but when you do something live, I think they send a notification to every one of your followers. Well, and they get they it, it varies. You have to turn on the notifications, but this is where repetition is important. So the things that you guys and I are talking about, I've spoken about five or six times across various interviews, and everyone's like, "God, you're making the rounds." That's what you have to do nowadays. You can't just do like Billy did the one article, but. If we just hung our hat on that, and that's why like, I'm happy to talk to anybody about our approach. And by the way, I'm being 100% transparent. We don't have it figured out. But here's the thing. We're not also spending a million dollars a month on a burn. You know what I mean? Like, to, like we're going to figure it out step by step. You know, our deal with Dave Marquez is a great deal for both sides. And it's, it's, it's a low flame approach. But the, the reaction we're getting shows that we're heading in the right direction. You know, and I think that's the important part of, of these ideas is testing these things that are, by the way, free. And again, you don't have to give away your best stuff, but but engage in an audience where you're not asking for their money. You'll be surprised in the long run uh, how far it gets you with an audience and, you know, and, and, and engaging with them and not preaching to them. You know, and it's just it, it's 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 really a unique approach. And at, at a small scale, we are if we can scale it up in the right way. I think people will be interested. Is this the uh, the synopsis for your TEDx wrestling talks? Um, I would be terrible at that. Um, this is my version of it, but I think. Well, no, I, I think I think there's a huge market out there actually right now. Is I think as as media has matured and diversified, I think there would be great if the content creators had a better opportunity to learn from each other about successes. Because yes. what I, I see over and over and over again is one person will do something. And it'll be great. And another person will do something and it will be so-so. And it's not always uh, proportional to the success of what they're seeing, but it has a lot to do with their ability to get the word out and to to hit the right markets. And I'm always like, I just wish more people were trading secrets. And I don't find most content creators to be all that selfish. I find them to be very giving, open, yeah. interesting people, but no one asks them. Very few people feel the need to say, here's what I'm doing to make it successful for me today. Yes. Like, Brandon, I called you... Four months ago, you know, I, I've called a lot of really smart people over the last eight months and, hey, we might be doing this. Hey, I, I might be taking pitches on this. Like we, we've developed three or four strategies that, you know, how do I produce like full disclosure? I went and produced a digital show with Ken Anderson and it was b built for YouTube. We just haven't decided when we're going to roll it out. Sort of like the Facebook watch shows. You know, they shot all those shows last year and they were waiting for the right approach. And I think they're not successful yet because 
you have to create content that's native for the environment that people use. Like Facebook content, it's weird dog videos or cat videos. Like I don't yet think they haven't found their house of cards. And I think I think live is the way because the fact that and, and this is where I think they can win the TV network thing. Everybody's on Facebook with everything. I'm streaming this interview on Facebook. There are three people watching it right now because it's Sunday morning, and my page has 2,000 likes. But when Billy plays live music on his Pumpkins page, which has 4 million, you know, we did a, we did a pop-up show in Laredo, Texas. And in 24 hours, it did 500,000 views with no promotion, with no money behind it, with no, with no lead-up. People want content in various places, as long as it's something they're interested on. You know, he played music and talked to the people of the radio in a surprise environment. I think there's ways to do that, and I'm happy to talk to anybody. And, you know, that's the point. Like, I don't need another booker. I need people who are smart and say, like, okay, I have this NWA brand. You know, I like, I'd love to put out digital books. You know what I mean? Why do I have to, why do I have to put out in bookstores, a traditional book. I, I have friends that took less money to, to put books out on major things because it legitimizes them, but they'll actually make less money putting a real book out as opposed to a digital book. Like, like that is just insane, but that's everyone's chasing the big brand idea about being put out by Penguin or Random House or all these things because it gets you on the Today Show, which ultimately does that sell you more books than literally going hand-to-hand online and selling books one at a time. I don't know what the answer is, but the traditional just is changing. And, you know, we're in a new TV season. I dare one of you to tell me two of the top new shows besides the Big Bang Theory spinoff. <laughs> yeah. What's I, on I, CBS All Access, Chris? <laughs> Star Trek? Are you going to bring up Star Trek? Uh, my, uh, my wings rewash right now. But, uh... <laughs> but, but think about that. Like, think about it. What are, what are the two biggest... Shows that are com- that are that are going to be on TV this year: Will and Grace and Roseanne. Television yeah. realizes that they are go- that are playing to an older audience because data shows you that, and that's why we become so big on data. Data has showed us that the world isn't dying for more, just more wrestling. Look at what happened with Flow Slam, and I'm sure you guys want to chat about that. Look what's happened with you know uh, TNA Global Impact Explosion uh, Force did not get a new television deal. They are in the same spot they were. I'm sure they got a little bit of a raise or whatever the the number is. But you have to create a product that fits the environment that's going there. Like wrestling should be on more television because it does appeal to an older audience. Um, You know, the USA Network without, and I think one of you guys did a chart, the USA Network without WWE, they would go from what, top three to to mid-20s on cable networks? Something like that. I don't think it was me that did the chart, but yeah, they they would so, they would no longer be like in the, in the top five or something like that. If they didn't have Raw SmackDown, you know, so, and, and you can talk about you can talk about ad rates, but I, I I've been prognosticating that I think there is an opportunity for Vince to do what UFC just did, but to sell to a conglomerate like a Disney, a Comcast, a Fox. Because they have these places that need programming, and they need to, especially in, in an advertiser world, this is very much like the newspaper era. You know, subscriptions and people reading, they got to keep those ad rates up. So eyeballs will be king to prop it up. And while it's not the sexy ad thing, you know, if, if Fox could leverage 3 million viewers on a Monday night consistently, which they don't have UFC, and if they don't have, you know, like if they don't have a sport on that, if it pushes their overall average up, that's a win. So, like to me, that's where you have to look at this far different. And again, it's not a booking problem; it is it is a branding problem. 
So so let's kind of go down that alleyway. So we talked a little bit about Flow Slam and other people that we do see some mega conglomerates coming along, like ESPN launching its yes. OTT service. Do you envision this being something where NWA would want to license or sell to a larger conglomerate like that? Or is this something that you think is going to remain an independent brand? I think we are the, – the, the, the thing you need to understand about Billy is, you know, he, this is his – fourth go around in pro wrestling you know obviously there's the story of him being asked to invest in ecw and then there was rev pro and then there was tna but all of those situations and in any brand if 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 right now espn came to you guys said listen we're going to put your podcast on but we're going to own 90 percent of it and you're going to be employees of us and you're going to do what we say you'd face a decision of if that is that the right thing have you have you hit critical mass on this creative endeavor you're going on you know i think we're going to approach decisions based upon What's right for the long-term vision? People have joked about Billy's 20-year plan, but this is truly a 20-year idea about not just about getting a cable show that will air on a Wednesday from 7 to 9 in the central time zone. This is about building out something as this environment changes and being lean and, and – uh, able to pivot. You know That was the problem when I worked at Impact. We were so dependent upon one television deal, and you saw what happened. You know what I mean? Like it changed – it changed the entire company when we didn't get Spike again, and we never recovered because they hadn't built out where WWE is smart. And even they would struggle if, for example, the USA went away and nobody was paying for content. A lot of people would lose their jobs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you guys look at all that stuff far more than I do. You know that that is the top down. And if I'm a pro wrestler right now. I'm trying to figure out how I can make more money or build out a following so that when I do have to ask people for money, when I have to, not always ask, they people will support me and being nice and genuine and and to give to these people now so when you really need it, it's there for you. What is your model that you've found out there? I'm, I know there's not going to be one, but have you seen another industry or creative where you said, wow, I like what so-and-so did here? And it's probably not a wrestling example as much as some other, you know, away anime or something else that just you, you saw it being done and you thought, wow, they really figured out a way to hit their market and, and make it work. I mean, I, I talk about Logan and Jake Paul a lot, but I don't think they're the greatest YouTubers out there. But what they've figured out is to speak to an audience they're i guess genuine to their characters like youtube i've gone down the youtube thing and there's a lot of guys doing very niche programming on there but you have to understand you can't just be good in one space you have to really kind of see what's in all these spaces and by the way they're all different sort of like speaking different languages what you post on instagram needs to be different than you post on twitter which needs to be different on youtube and then on snapchat there's all these different audiences and you have to understand and by the way you can't be a one-man show you need help. Like all these YouTubers have staffs of five or ten people. So you scale based upon success. So like I look at those, you know, the Bucks have done very well. And, you know, I think they have created a market where they don't have to um, make decisions that would limit them moving forward. Like why does a wrestling show have to be three hours? Why does it have to? Why can't the Young Bucks um, put on a pop-up show somewhere on their own and – leverage it against their following to like like billy and i explored the idea of doing a young bucks hardy's final deletion when the, with you know approaching a ring of honor and say listen we will fund it if you guys can have the match the actual match but if the hardys win if they came free from impact and we were able to produce that piece of content 
and as a as an audience attractor for us is that interesting you know what i mean like figuring out ways to like like attention to me is better than money at times and i understand monetization and i've heard that word a lot in the last week you know but again you have to take smart chances the 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 hardy shoot really didn't cost a lot of money it really didn't because it was very bootstrapped it was jb and jimmy long and ben out there with dslr cameras editing on laptops and and putting together a very almost trauma like film in wrestling and they, yeah. they changed the <laughs> culture analogy. and and but it's there for you like like if i i wouldn't have gone to college now if 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 17 year old me was looking at colleges and i'd see and ultimately the school i went to was 100 grand and i think it's 300 grand now you know how much how much i could make with that you know what i mean like if i was i would have been like the same version of me having youtube i would have learned all this stuff i would have been making videos i started making videos when i was 12 with camcorders you know what i mean like so you give me the technology that exists today i would have been making like i would have probably been doing i probably would have emailed every wrestling personality and wanted to make videos for him i was i made a i made a music video for jim Cornette in 1990 or 91 that i i through prodigy met dutch mantel who ended up working with 20 years later and you know, I was I made a music video for Cornette and the Midnight Express that I sent to Cornette on VHS, and Jimmy <laughs> watched, and I got notes back through. Like it was that was 1990. Like that, there is an environment here, and that's why I get, I get, um, I get like these messages from people. I, I, can you read my Roman Reigns storyline? Like I can, but I mean, like go go find an independent, go find a Joey Janela and make a piece of content. I'll watch that stuff all day. And I think that's the opportunity guys have. Like these guys, the beach bums out of Jersey sent stuff. They're friends with Rhett Titus. I looked at it. I gave them some notes. It was five minutes of my day. And I hope it helps them. And I have no monetary tie to them. But mm-hmm. at, to your point of people reaching out, I will support anybody that wants to do that. But if it's the brother, brother, hey, brother, I saw you running the NWA, brother. Can you get hire me, brother? I'm a referee, brother, from this place. And I've been doing it 20 years, brother. You know what I mean? Like, like that's great, and I'm sure we'll need referees. But I'd love to have a referee that could shoot and edit, or take photos, or can do graphics. Like, you need to have a multi approach to this, or you're just going to be a referee, and then you're just going to bitch. I never got a chance to do creative, and, and, and not just workers. Like, is, is there any uh, concern that maybe potential business partners might might look at the NWA and think, oh, this is a chance I can sell somebody something and maybe get more money for this thing than it's worth? Possibly. I mean, I think we're we're approaching this as a completely like like ser- I have people approach all the time like, hey, we have a, I'd love to do something with the NBA. Great. Send me a proposal. What do you think? I'm not going to think for you how to make your business work with my brand. You know what I mean? <laughs> like unless there's something I need. That's like the Marquez deal. You know, he approached us in the summer, said, hey, I was starting the CW thing. You know, selfishly, I think he would wanted to have the NWA back on his show. It was a nice moment. I think we provided him a lot of promotion for his debut based even just on the the, the amount of views on one YouTube video. But the amount of headlines, I think it's uh, you have to find mutually beneficial ideas that really um, that really help the best. So um, that to me is important of, of kind of what you find. So you, you talk a lot about audiovisual. Is the written word dead in your mind? No, it just has to be good. <laughs> tell me the tell me the la- like like I know Bix writes a lot of long things for Deadspin. Like who does really well written? You know, Meltzer writes a lot of great stuff behind a paywall. You know, and I know he writes a lot of MA stuff. And I, I, I'm not asking him to change his model because I understand it works for him. It's just 
who writes really like like the, the shoemaker writes stuff. You know what I mean? Like, is there really good journalism or long form being written in wrestling? If it is, great. But you have to understand that it has to have a you have to have a brand that people want to read it. No, you, I agree. You, you, you I can agree. read all my articles at Flightful.com. But no, and I, th- <laughs> and I think the, <laughs> I, I think the observer, the audience for that is is older, and I've seen that in, in some studies we've done. In that you see people on Reddit or Twitter. I, th- I think people who are getting their wrestling news from copy and paste websites, or just getting it from Reddit or, or various aggregators, they're younger than the people who yes. are getting, using the the torch and the observer. Yeah, and 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 it's fine that you like these models all exist, but. You know, this is why I like doing these interviews because I don't – I'm hoping that there are 10 to 15 or even five people that listen to you that are different from people that hear me on something else. And, you know, you have to understand like it's it's Sunday morning. You know, as I said to you guys before we start, I'm a heathen in Tennessee and I don't, I don't go to church like everybody else. Like now is the time you could literally rob a bank in Tennessee because everybody's a church, um, you know, and – I'm happy to do this because it's important. This is my full-time job. You know what I mean? And Billy supports me to 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 push the vision that we both have created. And we're both very passionate about this. And I have seen a lot of stuff. Oh, you're just a writer. Cool. Talk to me. Please. I'll, I, will, I will school you about the way the world is heading. And I am not just a writer. I like writing, and I'm pretty okay at it. But I, I, I spend a lot of time listening to very smart people outside the wrestling business about where media – and viewers and culture is going. And I love wrestling. I really do. But I feel like we've become these zombies that sit in front of programming that we sort of like hoping for something we really will love. And we'll watch 15 hours for five good minutes. That's like addict behavior. I mean, really it is. <laughs> and I, I, I think ahead. it's interesting when we're able to, like we were talking earlier about repackage things that are good and re-earth them. And I think one of the things that has struck me most is just the last 10 years here are so well documented in terms of you think about all the videos, the emails, the, everything that people have. And we have the capacity to save and preserve them. And in some ways, we don't have the ability to archive them, which is one of the biggest problems I think that happens out there. But when I used to do the um, the, the Death Valley Driver video review, we would do the top 100 matches from the 80s of mm-hmm. various feds. And I remember when we went through some of these feds, we would come across these matches and be like, no one's talking about this today. And this is incredible stuff. You know, all the Bill Dundee, uh, Jerry Lawler, Loser leaves towns matches and stuff like yeah. that or, or there's a killer con versus terry gordy match from texas that you just would never expect to be as good as it was yeah. and it, it's great when you're in a place where you can bring this back out and and re-earth it and kind of uh, bring it to the forefront because i think when you talk about people searching for what they really want to see in today's wrestling i feel like a lot of it is that there's some other thing that they really enjoyed and the problem is they don't have a great way of accessing what that is so if you say i really mm-hmm. like the intensity that, you know, I, I loved what Terry Funk used to be. And it's like, how do I turn that into today and connect me with a new superstar in a way? And it's it's very hard sometimes to kind of connect point A and B. Well, look look at how the business has been archived in shoot tapes. And I was telling uh, Randy Hales this. I made one of the first five shoot tapes in 1995 when uh, Tom Misnick did those ECW fan conventions. Um, I didn't go to the first one. I, there was a bad snowstorm that prevented me from coming down from college to go to it. But that, that summer in 95, you know, I had reached out to Tom. I said, listen, I said, I'd love to shoot it. And I, I had gotten, I don't know if you remember the Cornette Smoky Mountain Fan Week tapes that came mm-hmm. out in like 94, you know, and I think Prazak sent it to me. Um, 
And I remember putting them on audio cassette so I could listen to them on my uh, Walkman. Remember that? Um, and, you know, as I was driving uh, or going somewhere, it was always just like good way to learn the business. I, I did the same thing with some of those shoot tapes where yes. I tr- put them on CD. So on the long drives, we would listen to a shoot. Yes. So like like I, I made the one that, you know, Rob Feinstein made a lot of money off of. I made a good amount one summer. Um, but look at the way they have all been produced you know, tell me some good Terry Funk stories. Like, do like like you just brought up a match, Killer Khan, and it was a uh, Terry Gordy. Like, like really do it. Like, if there's a good story there, go go find what's there. Like, find the things that interest people: family, um, conflict, real conflict. Like, I'm sure uh, there's not a lot, a lot of great stories about SD Jones versus Brooklyn Brawler at the Philadelphia Spectrum in 1986. That's not a that's not a deep dive, but the idea that Hogan used to go from the Cap Center to Philadelphia in one day, like would do a one o'clock and a seven o'clock, like what's the most interesting version of that story? It's not the match; it's the stuff in between it that people find interesting. Like like traveling with Dusty, I wish it was now because I would I would have got a, a lavalier camera uh, or lavalier microphone and I would have recorded all of it. Because it was so good. And I think he would want it. Because I'm watching these documentaries and these old shoot tapes. And he doesn't look good. And he, he, you can tell he doesn't want to say something. Like, like I've been privileged. And my brain only remembers pieces of it. Because our brain is like a terrible hard drive. You know what I mean? Like, it's got more malware on it than uh, than, than you need. Um, and so, like, like, I think there is an archiving of the business that can be done very well. And am I going to do it all? No. But I have a brand that people really, really 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 love and by the way the, the energy of that brand when people talk about world champions more often than not they talk about that period that the nwa world title was strong from 1948 until about 1985 right you know what i mean that was the gold standard of world titles and obviously i'm very well aware of what happened after and you know i was there the night shane threw the belt down literally third row behind a whole bunch of japanese wrestling fans that had come over on some tour to go to SummerSlam, and so like I know what it is, but I also know what it can be, and I understand there's a whole audience that doesn't know what it is, but I'd love to educate them. What is your you, – you bring up you know, a brand, and one thing we cover a lot on the show is all the legal wranglings around trademarks and brands and copyrights and rights fees and lawsuits and whatnot. Um, how much of that have you been entered into in your time here working with the NWA brand? So you know, the, we entered into discussions – in February, it's almost November. <laughs> um, there's a reason we've been patient. You know, the story first broke in May um, about us buying it, and there was so much legally that still was going on. But you know, we wanted to make sure people understood that we were doing this because obviously there was a lot of legal stuff still working out at that period. And you know, in 20 years, when we're doing the VR. Um, version of whatever this is where we look back at this moment i can tell the full story but there is a lot of legal stuff that has to go into it and you can't i feel like there's a lack of patience in the wrestling business and everybody wants i mean just look at the invasion for god's sakes you know what i mean like you know if you take your time with something and handle it legally right it will it will it will build so like for example the the reason nobody ever was able to buy the nwa the way we bought it was because it what was it before it was 30 promoters that all had this weird equity stake in this weird thing that nobody controlled and it's why since 1985 
it didn't really it didn't ex- it didn't do well in a multimedia environment. It did very well before television's explosion in '84 with cable, but what happened was when Bruce Tharp was able to file his lawsuit, he got consolidation under one under one person. You know what I mean? The licensees had that was going to be my question: was having an attorney kind of. Uh, who was passionate about trying to lead or, or shape this brand in the form of Bruce Tharp? Uh, was he really the decider to kind of make it possible for someone to eventually actually acquire the rights? Well, yeah, because obviously it's uh, get 20 people together, decide where they want to go for dinner. Like there was a, apparently a deal that existed um, for the NWA to be sold to a media conglomerate sometime, I think sometime before Bruce Tharp got it. And people couldn't agree. So... When you have one person, it was Bruce's decision. And I think Bruce, by, by doing what he did, he solved the giant problem that existed with the NWA. Now, a lot of people don't like Bruce. Bruce and I did not get along at first. But now he, I think he understands what we're trying to do. And it's things that he just wasn't capable of doing based upon his skill set. And sometimes like, there's a lot that I don't know how to do. But, I, you know, our job is to leverage and find the right people to do it. So when, when the opportunity came, you know, uh, it, it just took a lot of legal deciding, like trademarks. OK, this is the mark we own. Like I, I found NWA licensees not using the trademark. Like, guys, you have to use the trademark. Otherwise, you're just putting letters that nobody can own. You know what I mean? Like, yes, <laughs> like they, they have to understand the value of a mark and and brand identity and and all this stuff. And again. For what we for our investment so far, we are, we're we're ahead just on just on equity alone and uh, energy and potential and we haven't sold one T-shirt yet we haven't sold one hat yet we haven't done anything other than just simply say hey we're here come talk to us and that's the interesting part has the Indeed. relaunch of uh, so one question quick question has the relaunch of straight out of Compton and the NWA brand compounded things at all because i've seen in some of the trademark filings you know challenges going back and forth leading back from the 80s yeah i think this is where history and and understanding uh trademarks and you know i'm not a expert in the wwf lawsuit even though i was there at the time you know you just have to respect the lineage of legal decisions and things above my pay grade and and mental legal thing and that that's one thing people don't really understand about billy Matt Conway always joked that Billy is almost like a shoot lawyer. Like he has been in so many lawsuits and so many uh, situations like this over 30 years. And that's where people like, what does he know about the wrestling business? He knows about the brand building business. He's been running a business, his own business and doing every legal decision like this. And I don't know how I don't, I'm trying to remember you guys coverage of the, the lawsuit. You know what Billy was able to he didn't lose the lawsuit, and that was some really poor reporting by people like they said he lost it. No, he lost the injunction because the judge said, well, I, you don't have enough definitive proof for me to put this injunction through. But yeah, he still has the loss. He today can sue Dixie Carter and various people in TNA for fraud, for deception. For, you know, they're, they're, he still has a, a lawsuit against Impact Ventures. He waived all of it to Anthem, you know what I mean, and that mm-hmm. was part of the buyout. But you know, he still can do it because he's so smart and understanding not to make bad legal decisions. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. But no, uh, no, like, I think he, our good. I was going to say I think our defense was I don't think we were broadcasting at the time the TNA lawsuit. So okay, I can, but I mean, you guys, you know, <laughs> you no, guys, I know exactly what you mean. I I follow lawsuits probably closer than almost anyone else in wrestling media, 
and 50% of what people distill from either what I write or what I might t- post on Twitter is 100% wrong because yeah. there's no understanding of, you know, what it, what feels right to you is not the same as what is legally right based on the rights that have been established in U- U.S. law. You know, like yeah. you say, trademark is something that has to be enforced by usage, not by uh, uh, just having a piece of paper. Because the yes. point of a trademark is that you don't want brand confusion in the marketplace. If yes. you don't put your brand in the marketplace, there's nothing to confuse with. So, so for your point on the NWA thing, that's why that mark is so important. You're not going to confuse – the rap group and us, as long as the letters and the wrestlers are on the and you know what I mean. Like you're not going to confuse it. Now, if we did a T-shirt, like the Hardys did a, um, a an NWA like T-shirt, if we put one of those out, then yes, we would have a problem. And we're not going to do that because I don't want to. You don't want to get in a fight with them, like WWF did with the with the Panda. You know what I mean? Like, and they had an agreement that they wouldn't do certain things. And knowing Vince and Kevin Dunn, they're like, ah, whatever. You know? What oh I mean? yeah. Like, I mean, it's 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 egregious when you go back through the documentation on it. It's it's pretty clear that they just essentially thought, why not? And they also it was a UK injunction, not a US injunction. And so I think that also probably played a role that you know there wasn't there was just this thought that. Why would international law really hamper us? But you know what? All they had to do was point to, hey, here's an agreement you filed in 1985 when you first tried to do WWF. And then here's one you did in 95 when you actually wrote it down. Yes. So, I mean, did, so, I mean, did they have legally, to stop using WWF in the UK first for a while? No, it was uh, – they, okay. they lost it. And I remember being on a – I remember it was like – it's right when I first got there. And you know there was very little discussion about what it was going to be. I think I remember there was a discussion just to call it World Wrestling and just go to like WW, which would have been a funny website address, www.ww.com. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, there was a bunch of different stuff. And I wish, again, I, I wish I wrote stuff down. Uh, I'm just bad with it, you know, about remembering. In, I mean, literally 52 weeks a year on the road, four days a week for six years straight. I mean, your brain, like I just, today is, I guess, the. 10 or 11 year anniversary of Eddie Guerrero spraying shit on the big show, which um, (laughs) is one of the better, worst segments I came up with off of Vince McMahon's uh, tainted burrito, which uh, somebody told the story that Vince didn't think that the larger audience would know what a burrito was. Like somebody told that story and it's, it's a legit story. And I remember Stephanie saying, but he eats a steak wrap every day or something. He didn't realize that that was a burrito. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but but like even his daughter's like no Vince Taco Bell's like a big thing. I understand like 1985, you know the burrito maybe wasn't a a uh, colloquialism, but you know I think Taco Bell who you know takes the same five ingredients and comes up with new marketing based around. I mean it's so much like pro wrestling and make your head spin. But yeah, anyway, um, I, I remember the 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 shit truck. I was like you know what, and I remember we I had pitched. I'm like why can't we spray the shit into the audience? <laughs> Just like, 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 why do we have to like we with a beer truck? Remember, like, I'm sure pe- people got wet. I think we would have had a lot of problems. Uh, that's why, if you remember, the truck came out and Big Show got sprayed towards the set. Um, yeah, um, and I remember we dropped stink bombs into the thing because obviously oh, it wasn't no. real shit. So <laughs> I mean, people got violently ill, oh, and no. um, I can't wait for this. By the way, to be the only story that gets grabbed from your podcast, yeah, this this will be all over the wrestling. Dave Lagana enjoys spraying shit around wrestling. So please, yeah. there's a headline. Please go ahead and do that. <laughs> Clickbaitsites.com. Uh, but so, with, um, with NWA, at the the impression I get, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that like, like short term. I know we've we've heard uh, in, in the Sports Illustrated piece. There's a 20 year plan. 
Yeah. But like short term is, is the idea to get a lot of attention, get as many eyeballs as you can. And, and rather than invest in like doing live shows or invest in some more expensive infrastructure, I think is the idea to do that stuff later once you get a, a lot of attention and buzz. Yeah. I mean, look, look, again, what did we buy? We bought a trademark and seven championship belts. Of those seven belts, which one means the most? The world, world title. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like everybody knows that belt. You go back. I got again. I went down the Memphis, um, the Memphis uh, uh, clickbait hole or whatever it was called. Like YouTube. You know what I mean? And there's Flair standing with Jerry Lawler in 1980, whatever, you know, having like this thing wearing the, the iconic NWA belt. So for us and then the, the, again, that first video we put out it's 30 seconds on a guy that nobody knows. But the belt, you see more of the belt than the person wearing it. That's the point is, is we're going to spend – We're talking about Tim Storm, the, the yes. champion, right? Yes. So you know, I, I think you know, even Jerry Lawler who worked Tim Storm is like, I didn't even know who this guy was before I worked him a month ago. And, and Tim, is, Tim is woefully aware of you know, the, the Q rating he has. And my promise to him was – and it's so funny. Everyone was like, oh, they're flying him out to L.A. to beat him. Then, like, like, then, who's, then who's, who's, who's that person beating? You know, our job is to make – Tim Storm as important as every man that's ever held that belt. And if we were to discredit anyone who ever held that belt, it would be a disservice to the championship or belt, as Vince McMahon doesn't call it. Um, so so the first set of stories you're going to see are based around Tim and that title and the story that's happening. That's why our deal with Dave Marquez is so advantageous because I don't got to put on a TV taping. Dave does a great television product out of Los Angeles. Obviously, my connection and friendship to him helps make these deals easy, and we both – it's mutually beneficial. You know what have I mean? You, and it's – I was just going to say, have you studied any of the other kind of uh, upstart federations in the past and thought about you know what made them successful and, and gave them a lot of growth even in the old age, like I think a lot about, I've been listening to this podcast about FMW. That's yep. really great. And, and Bahu and, and Stephen and do it. And it, it really, it's really fascinating to me to see how Onita built a brand around himself and then mm-hmm. built a federation around the brand. But he, and you know, with the no first TV. thing, he, well, with no TV. And then he was working and in a culture that almost had no indie wrestling. And then yep. he started in a martial arts direction. But what's funny is you see the, um, the roulette wheel of, and when he starts, he tries everything, women, midgets, fire, uh, you know, just as comedy battle royales, just whatever he could think of, martial arts um, competitions, just which anything. Like FMW stands for Frontier Martial Arts, which is that people forget when it ends up being a deathmatch company. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, and he figures out, hey, deathmatches seem to be the thing that I can sell magazine subscriptions based on. Mm-hmm. And that means I'll get attention and then I can run 3,500 people and then a lot more per show. But I'm just kind of curious in your mind, has there been any of those landmarks out there? I know there's not a lot of examples, but uh, just well, in your you, head. Have, you have to look at, you know, uh, and, and again, what year was that? 93? Uh, 89 he started. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at where the world was. And that, that's why I think we spent a, a good amount of the beginning to understand where the world is. The fact that, you know, I, I shut off my Facebook live stream, but the first 40 minutes of this is available on Facebook. I hope that's good for you guys. You know, but if, for me, it allows if you didn't get my Facebook stream two days ago when I talked to Brian Fritz, you know, you get the same information and or, or, or digest it differently. I think you got to look at the time that you're launching a product. You know, Amazon is Amazon is becoming this worldwide leader by not doing like they bought the Washington Post, but they didn't buy the Washington Post to put newspapers out. 
you know, the, the, if you go look and see what Jeff Bezos has done with the Washington Post, they're spending lots of monies so web pages load faster. Oh, and, like, and they're on Audible now, which yes. that's how I consume my Washington Post articles is, yeah. is the fact well, that they, they've done Amazon Prime, deals with Audible, puts it up there. Like the, the, the Alexa briefings, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about like and, – and nobody's – I mean we're about 30 years from somebody in wrestling doing that. You know what I mean? Um, you know, the, the idea of giving a, a concise three-minute audio daily update on pro wrestling for free on an Alexa device to brand build. You know, Bruce Pritchard's doing a four-hour podcast on Jeff Jarrett. You know what I mean? Like there, there's a – you have to understand that there are different audiences for different sizes of content. But, you know, I think that's the point. Look what Onita did in all those different directions. We have a brand that everyone understands this legacy around. The NWA stood for tradition and and a certain amount of seriousness. If we were to launch an ECW brand with – type brand with the NWA letters, it would be off-brand, meaning that if you go back and look at the heyday history – there was a certain energy around that mid-Crockett era or even back to Jack Briscoe. There was the, – the men who carried that world title were real men who had real-like conflict in, in real-life situations. You know, there wasn't a lot of Kamala versus the NWA world champion. There was no Papa Shango versus the NWA world champion. You have to kind of make your decisions, but there's nothing stopping me from going to – like like I talked to the guy that runs those Oklahoma shows. And, you know, he wanted to do something with the NWA. It just was too early. But he had, I think, probably two to 3,000 people last night. If I brought my DSLR camera and I had my streaming box that I could stream an NWA world title match live on Facebook today for no cost, and you could see Tim Storm defend the world title, single camera. But, again, you're not paying for it. Brand building that way and establishing who this man is and not only the match. You know, you get five minutes before, you get a documentary piece a day later, you get the live stream right after the thing. Like when AJ Styles won the U.S. title, WWE Digital was it was 45 minutes before they had a picture. Like what world are we in? You know what I mean? Like that, like like that's the thing is you have to hack where people are. I watched 17 different videos on Twitter and Instagram alone of AJ winning the U.S. title from Kevin Owens well before the the company that did the event put one out. What are your thoughts about the U.S. in terms of the distribution for wrestling fandom? Uh, do you see this, you know, being more centered in Southwest and South and and uh, whatnot for wrestling fans, or is it, is it a national brand that's truly natural national? And is the wrestling interest level kind of equally spread across the country these days? I think I think that's what's interesting is you see, you know, look at the territory system. You know, guys would go to places and and. So, for example, you know, while Flair traveled, Magnum T.A. didn't travel while he worked for Crockett. Now, he worked for Mid-South for a bunch of years, but he wasn't going from Mid-South and then going to work a shot up in New Jersey. Like, these guys travel everywhere all the time. So, and this is why I'm so pro-talent, you know, controlling their brands, because the promotions don't have as much equity in the places they run. You know, they spend a lot of money flying talent in to entertain a 1,000 people. At best, you know what I mean? And that's why we're looking at the economics to make the right decision. I'd rather work with smart people that are that want to leverage the brand and, and then also learn from us to make decisions on shows instead of just announcing we're going to do a show in Tulsa, you know, just to try it. You know what I mean? I think that would be a mistake. And that's where you spend money uh, that you don't need. And, you, and like, like people lose so much money and then but ego lets them hide it and they don't ask for help because they don't want to seem weak. I want to do the, the different approach is. You know, if I put Tim Storm 
in an RV and we drive around from show to show doing the traveling world champion thing. Figure out what the cost produce content that brand builds, and he's literally the traveling world champion. I'm not saying that's something we're doing, but we've explored ideas like that. To me, that's better than putting on one show in one market for 200 fans that you're not going to broadcast on the internet because you want people to buy tickets to come see. That's what I mean. I want to approach a completely different way, and Billy's super supportive. Now, that's not saying, and, I, and I've said this publicly, and people need to understand, we are going to do a live event studio wrestling show in 2018. Probably in March, we're just figuring out the time place. But again, not to sell tickets, but to brand build and show leverage everything we've talked about on here. So, for example, if the show's on a Wednesday, it's the live event is on Wednesday, but everything else around it would center around characters, development. So, for example, if Tim Storm's going to work in LA on Sunday, his Wednesday appearance would push that event, and then the digital narrative would tie around it back to the following Wednesday. And you have to start small. That's why I'm saying we're probably signed two to five people next year. I'm not going to sign 40 people. I, my email is full of 200 people that want to work for us. You know, it's I, I, I can't employ everybody, but everyone can contribute if they're willing to brand build with us and understand that if you come on board early, it's just like the ECW thing. Look at all those guys that were there for the long haul and but they didn't have an Internet presence. They didn't really build their brand except sort of, hey, I can go to WWE and leverage one big contract. Over the last 20 years here, probably could be argued that Japan has in some ways, you know, kept the NWA name alive even more than yep. in the U.S. What What are your thoughts with, um, you know, is there Japanese uh, connections that we might see in the future? I think, again, we're open to discussing it. We we There was an offer to do uh, Tim Storm into Japan this week. It just didn't like it would have been off brand, you know, because no one knows who Tim is yet. You know what I mean? Like, like. Uh, if you're doing too much like, – like Jerry Lawler wrestled Tim Storm three weeks ago, and there was a pitch to put Jerry over. We didn't feel the optics were right to do that prior to announcing the launch. It would have brought the wrong headline. You know, a 70-year-old man wins NWA world title, and I love Jerry. You know, we talked about it. The optics of a 70-year-old and a 50-year-old fighting for the world title – just doesn't feel right you know what i mean that's just not the right story the right story is, is if you have a 21 year old world champion and he's going up against this legend in memphis you know what i mean there you do the story right so for japan we're open to it but it's it's got to be the right thing it can't be some group no one's ever heard of against a guy nobody's ever heard of against a champion nobody's ever heard of you have to make the right brand decisions and i know people will be like oh you guys you should be doing this well everybody should be doing something but we have a very calculated approach to this because there's so many wrestling companies just running because that's what you do. You put on a monthly show and you monetize it. You put it behind a paywall. Why? Because that's what you do. And that, that's so, so does that approach apply to the other belts? You know, like I always think back to the super J cup, you know, yeah. it was famous because they basically figured out a way to discover, you know, however many belts it was that Ultimo won 12 or whatever. And they just went around to every J, J crown, J crown where they just went yeah. to every different company that they could think of. And, you know, WWF light heavyweight title was floated around on that. Right. The, I think AWA title was the Mexican title NWAs. What would you say that approach is true for all of those? Or would you be more open to maybe having one of those other brands also be uh, kind of, you know, being traded in, in a less public manner? Yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, everyone asks, what about the other belts? So anything that we didn't purchase don't exist anymore. So if you're the NWA Central States champion, you're not anymore. You, you can't. You just, it's just, there's a trademark. You know what I mean? There, that's why we bought the trademark. But as far as the belts we purchased, 
uh, I use the term they're in suspended animation right now because we want to focus on one thing because you can't – I'd rather tell one story really, really well than tell seven stories mediocrely. You know, and, and you know, some people are not patient. Trust me. If you, if you knew what my last uh, – and I'll tell you guys off the air what the last three weeks have been like, uh, you know, about people thinking so small and so today instead of just being patient, which is fine. Pro wrestling people don't have patience. It's what are you doing for me today, brother? You know, it's which is fine, and and, and it's their decision. But it's our asset. So as far as what we'll do, like for me, it would make no sense to put the NWA Junior Champion in a territory that I don't have creative control. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't like there's no brand building in that because I don't have control over it. And and I think that's what happens is you have to have some sort of control on. What's your the story you're putting out and how you're putting it out? It's why Vince McMahon's people don't appear on other people's shows without there being like again. This is the first era that think about it. The first era that WWE contracted talent are appearing on independent shows. Like like this didn't happen. You know what I mean? It didn't happen before five years ago. And I think that's a lot of Triple H's influence. It's not Vince going. You know, I really want to send Noam Dar back to ICW. I don't think Vince is in those discussions. So. <laughs> Didn't in the mid nineties they would like rent out Undertaker here and there? Yeah, they did it with Smoky Mountain, but again, that was that was when the company was in financial (laughs) issues. Or or it was when they had um obligations to fill with sometimes, you know, talent trade and sometimes then it would come with some strings attached, similar to, you know, we'll send somebody over to make the show go a little better. Or the famous one with The Undertaker, they booked double trouble on a WWF tour a couple times because those guys had actually trademarked the name The Undertakers. And yes. we're suing WWF for it. Yeah, and and again, business deals are based whatever. But you have to understand, like that's why our play right now, the company is Billy and I. You know what I mean? And uh, Billy's not drawing a salary. You know what I mean? Like it's not like he's not paying himself four hundred thousand dollars a year to run the NWA, uh, like some people did. Um, I'm not saying the NWA. You can infer what you want from that. Um, you know, like this is this is a passion thing. This is. And I don't use the word toy. This is this, like Billy loves wrestling. And I think that's another thing. You know, people, oh, he's just a rock star. He's a money mark. No, he genuinely appreciates the boys and, and the, the art of this. We're very artist friendly. You know, I, I, I've had knocks that, oh, you're just a writer that hands scripts and get mad when people don't say your words word for word. I'm the opposite. Now, I love writing promos, but I always hand it to a talent and say, put this in your own words. Here's some suggestions because guess what? Everything's produced. Everything's written. And, and you know, everyone's like, oh, the talent should cut the promos bullet points. Great. Show me the last great uh, independent wrestling promo. I'll wait. You know what I mean? Like, who is cutting blow away promos right now? What's your been, take been on kind of the element of the scene where we have a lot of wrestlers, but more and more – we, we get them kind of tied up in these very complex contracts where either it's, you know, I work for this company, but I can't appear on television in this country or whatnot. It, do you see that as being a um, a challenge for you going forward here? Or do you think there's a lot of undiscovered talent? And if so, what what is the avenue for you to discover talent like that? So, you know, I think you have to just sort of pay attention. Like, like I love Ricochet. I think he's I think he's an amazing um, generational talent. He does stuff in the ring that people pro- probably would say hadn't seen since like Rey Mysterio in the mid nineties, you know, but he's been under, under a mask, under a Lucha underground deal feel, seemingly for five years, you know, and it has hurt his ability to take the years that he is best, you know, like why, like 
he would have done great in the Cruiserweight Classic, right? But also, w- imagine him being stuck on 205 Live. You know what I mean? Like, like nobody's being brand built on 205 Live. And by the way, that's why they put Enzo Amore on there, and people hated it. But it's helped the 205 Live viewership, which, by the way, attention is everything. So, um, you know, it's it's just timing. Like, there's a lot of guys under weird deals everywhere. And but ultimately, the, the, when you when you agree to a deal, you have to be smart enough to understand the the what's there. Like I talked to a lot of the guys who you remember the Young Bucks talked about well, going to work for Lucha, but they were smart enough to read that contract and go, wait, how long? Like there wasn't even like a term. It was like seasons. Like there wasn't even years in them. And by the way, they're not paying those guys. I don't, I don't understand how those contracts are legal, honestly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they're not paying the guys for the periods they're not working. They're not booking them. So I guarantee you if anyone and, – and the problem with legal is – and this is why you have to be very careful with what you sign. As soon as you sign something, not only does it lock you into being paid, but it also has to lock you into being having to pay to get out of it. And especially like Vince's headbutt promo, if you just want to dissect that promo for a moment and everything he said and did in that, it might be the greatest work slash shoot I've ever seen in the history of the business. We, we, we did half a show on it actually. You know what <laughs> I mean? If you dissected – Word for word, idea by idea, he basically laid out exactly the way the business is in one promo in so many ways. That's why he's the hands down the, the king. You know what I mean? Because he – and that's why you've got to be careful in any deals you make. And you know, there's a lot of talent out there. I know that this is off your question, but I only need five talents to succeed. Why do I need to have a roster of 40? Because more mouths you have to feed – more mouths you have to feed. You know what I mean? Like, and th- that's where I'm like, everyone has this expectation. Well, the NWA, the Alliance, it was territories. Yeah. How's that working? Did it work? Go look, go look at what it was, you know? And, and again, the mid, the mid two thousands, they were doing Marquez and them were touring around doing 6,000 people with shows. So it is possible to work, but when you have 20 people deciding 20 different ideas, it doesn't work. So this is this is our approach to it, and we think it'll work. And and ultimately, instead of spending five million dollars this year, if we make smart bets on digital ideas, you know, if if I I'd rather hire twenty smart uh, content creators to work with five really well uh, booked slash personalities that we can make content that we brand build over and over again across all these portals at a at a fraction of a single TV taping cost for for a major brand. And we can be the talked about brand digitally. To me, that's great. And then when opportunity, like, look at what's changed in the last six months. Just in the wrestling business, from Flow Slam to what's happening with Impact to Lucha Underground. If you're patient and you're just sitting there and you're providing numbers, and that's why Billy's 300000 You know, and by the way, that's not day one. We know it's going to take work to get people to pay attention, but you have to put on content that people want to watch. Go look at some of the wrestling content that's put out by major companies that doesn't get views and you wonder why are they spending time, money and, and effort into this? You know, use the, okay, this didn't work. Do 10 of them and see if people watch. And if they don't, okay, don't make any more of them. So, you know what I mean? Like, well, the, uh, like I find agree. where the audience is. I, I think one of the best investments WWE has done in the last 18 months here is that they've really spent a lot of time and effort to beef up their analytics department. Yep. And I'm curious to see what they can do with that. I mean, I'm, I don't think it's the solution in itself. Uh, you have to heed the advice of people like that. You have to be, you know, dynamically connected to other departments. It does no good to give you a spreadsheet if it's about create better content or create more engaging things about this. And yes. there's not those content creators. But I, I think that to me is 
that's an, a good example of an area where it's a money suck, right? Because it, yeah. it it has almost no ROI unless you can come up with analytical ROIs on it. Yeah. But it has an enormous value as a company when you suddenly are being told, this is why this instinct is a good instinct, and this is why this gut instinct might not play out in today's culture. And 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 you do have to fight it. You know, A/B testing only gets you so far. Everything has has been shown. But I mean, I, I agree very heavily that you have to kind of continue to find ways to um, develop, you know, the right staff and the right people. I would ask you, you've worked with, you know, wrestlers and pro wrestling personalities from all walks of life. Some who yep. are coming in, literally, this is their first time being in a wrestling company and others that, you know, strived and worked on the indies for years and years, lifelong fans. Um, do you have any insights about, you know, either what characters or personalities or backgrounds are being underrepresented right now where you think, wow, that I really wish we could see more people doing this. Like, you know, when the MMA took off, obviously there was an opportunity to capitalize on that. And there was all sorts of talks and we saw how it was done wrong in Japan and we saw how it was done right in other places. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious your thoughts of, is there a background or something that you think is still the right background for wrestling? I think there's a authenticity. Like what, what do people like about wrestling? If you boil it down to the singular thing that people like, they like big fights, they like big personalities, they love confrontations, and they like things that surprise them, but also surprised in the ter- term that they maybe didn't see it coming, but it makes sense in the narrative that they've been told. Like one of the greatest wrestling stories ever, you could say, is Macho Man and Hulk Hogan from WrestleMania 4 to WrestleMania 5. It's a very predictable story, but big characters. That, you know, there was a very personal conflict. Like, look what what works. You know what I mean? Austin McMahon worked. But if you go back and look at some of the stuff that they did, some of it is completely nonsensical, but big characters and a big idea. You know, I think you have to find the stuff that people attach to story-wise. And by the way, story always works. Great storytelling always works if you can understand the why, the beginning, middle, and end. And I feel, I mean, what great stories are happening in wrestling right now? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, like, like what are you compelled? Like, are you dying? I mean, and by the way, I think the Kevin Owens, um, Shane McMahon. And Jericho. Good, oh. Uh, no, well, no, and I'll go back to that one in a second, too. Yeah. I, I think the Kevin Owens, Shane McMahon story is a very good story. I think, you know, it, it makes sense. You know, there's things there. You know, it's very personal. Is it being told the best way possible? No. But, you know, they're, they're, the, the beats of it are very strong storytelling. You know, Jericho and, and Owens. Everybody saw it the way it was going to end. You know, ultimately, think about it. Those guys broke up for one WrestleMania match over the U.S. title. You know what I mean? Like, it was, I don't even know how long they were together. I think they were only together six months, right? As soon as they got together, you knew they were going to break up. You know, it just, it just, you just saw it because that's what happens. And that's fine. It was a perfectly fine story. And, and like, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn have been fighting forever. And we're doomed to do it forever. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think you would say they're one, one quarter of their WWE matches are with each other. Yeah. That's amazing. But is their best version of their story in WWE or Ring of Honor? I was there. It was Ring of Honor. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, <laughs> WWE did Ring of Honor was good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, just because it was, but it was, it took time. It played out over time. And I understand that that's the point of why we're scaling small. I don't have to fill 15 hours a week of programming. Have you know you what been, I mean? Like, have you been watching some of the other content creation, you know, uh, 
new technology integrations going on. So I think specifically of AAA with Triple Mania and mm -hmm. broadcasting on Twitch. Do you have any thoughts yep. about how, you know, the good or the bad of, of what something like that might teach a, a creator like you? Yeah. So, so, you know, I don't know how much you guys know about when we were at Ring of Honor, Adam Pierce and I, um, you know, we pushed a lot of stuff forward. If you go back and look at that HDNet show, you know, that was NXT. A lot of the, I mean, literally, it's the same show in a lot of ways. And with a lot of this, what was the same people, you know, uh, but the I like literally even to the I pay per view, you know, the takeovers were the big Ring of Honor shows. Um, I think there is a model because, again, you can't go live every week at a, at a like it's just it's you're not WWE. You know what I mean? No other company is able to do it. But I think there's a model that exists of taped programming or cheaply produced setup programming that drives people to want to watch a triple mania on a spot that is live. You know, I watched that show. I didn't, I, I, I'm not a Lucha guy. So like, like it doesn't make sense to me because it defies story logic at times, you know, and, and, and even just in the setup of matches. But as far as a, an event, I was happy that I could literally pull it up on my Apple TV and watch it. And it streamed perfectly fine. They delivered the product. Now you can yeah. argue the creative, you know, and Twitch looks like they're moving in a lot more of a wrestling direction. And I don't know what the financial compensation is, and I haven't spoken to them. Um, but that is a play because they're smart enough to understand, well, wrestling fans may be video game fans. And by the way, these companies are smart to not limit their audience just to one niche. You know, I remember pitching Daphne to Vince McMahon in, in uh, 2003, and we ended up hiring her. And he's like, nobody wants to see goth girls. I'm like, uh, suicide girls? You know, it's like a whole thing. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> – he thought the world just wants Tori Wilson, which, by the way, Tori is an amazingly attractive woman. But you don't want 20 Tories. You want one. You know what I mean? Like you have to have a niche. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the live event being available in various platforms. I do believe in a pay-per-view environment, but not just doing pay-per-view for the sake of pay-per-view, meaning uh, Mayweather McGregor did all that business, but everything leading up to it was free and everywhere. Because they created a single conflict, they didn't. They didn't really spend a lot of time booking those undercard matches at, at the at the press conferences, right? They booked one thing that you wanted to see, and like to me, that works. Why do I have to run a twelve match NWA show if I could find a place that gave you a one hour NWA World Title match story? And yes, there's an undercard, and, and you know you have to fill out certain bits of it, but. You know, there, there, there's there's experimentation in all this, and that's what's exciting. And that's why I've been talking for two hours about it, and we haven't talked booking once. There, there is there is an idea here that – and this is why we're being open about it. So if we're right, then great. I was right. If I was wrong, well, then at least I, you can lay down what we said based upon what actually happened. And you go, oh, well, at least they tried as opposed to uh, going somewhere, shooting 16 weeks of TV, and then trying to sell it to a network when it's six months old. Brandon, what are some of your thoughts? So you, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago doing maybe doing a studio show in March 2018. Do you, yep. do you have a, a location in mind for that? Is, is it and yes, yes, in March? <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> I, I, I'm not at liberty to say. But okay. the idea – and I was thinking about this. I was driving home last night from Memphis because, again, think about what the Memphis territory – like it kind of boggles my mind, and this is where the guys have to understand – you know, if you're in a location that runs a lot of shows, to a sometimes the guys' flights are more than their payoffs. So, like, the, the, like I do believe I, – I'm not saying that the territory has to exist, but if you're able to help the costs of a promoter 
and 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 work like you become more special. So these guys that fly all over, and by the way, I know it's how you make money, but if if you could build out a territory, so to speak, and and this is not he wants to build an old school territory. And just thinking about it, it's why the territory thing worked. You know, instead of having to fly your entire show in, you know what I mean. Think about that cost. And once you start behind that eight ball, then you have to think monetization every five minutes. So we're looking at an area that that makes sense to have a cluster of two to five people based out of that we could produce the show that it, I don't have to fly them in every week. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, like build a show around that so I keep my costs down so I can do really good content without spending money on plane tickets that unless I'm going to monetize the plane ticket, meaning the guys are going to make content as they come in, that's, that's at least part of the narrative, then I can at least decide how that works. That makes sense. So, yeah. You've worked with so many uh, people in all these different companies here. If you had someone and you were to say, okay, pretend they're not under contract any longer or or in some cases, unfortunately, they were still with us and, and they're not, you know, is there someone that you would be like, this would have been my ideal person to build this brand around like an Eddie Guerrero or something? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody that fits the genre of the thing, you know what I mean? Like. Let me think like who would who would be a prototypical NWA world heavyweight champion? I'll say I'll say it because he's on the like Jack Swagger in 1976 would have been a, a, a great like pedigree, legitimacy, size. You know what I mean? Like that certain guys fit certain eras. So like of current guys. But I mean, like, you know, it's funny talking to Jerry Lawler and, you know, Jerry Lawler is NWA world champion in a different era is interesting. You know what I mean? Because he knows how to get over. And I think that's the thing is understanding what it means to be a champion. So like, there's no individual examples, but that's like, when you look at Jinder Mahal and I think Jinder in a different era. And if you, if you could somehow uh, men in black, the audience's thought process on Jinder and erase all the bad memories. And it's the same with Ronnie Garvin. You know what I mean? Ronnie Garvin was a mid card guy up until the flair thing. And your brain remembers him in drag as Miss Atlanta Lively, you know what I mean? Like there's a certain energy to somebody who's world champion and it's hard to wipe the brain of the audience. So that's why protecting new talents when they come in is so important. So like, it's hard, it's hard for me to give you an example because there's so much generational memories on all these people. But yeah, Eddie would have been a unique underdog. I don't know if size wise he'd fit for world heavyweight champion. And I think a lot of guys have changed the genre, but if you're going to, if you're going to build a division that, you know, Ray versus the Great Khali, and I booked it, you know, for the world heavyweight title, just it doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? If It just doesn't it doesn't feel like the kind of thing that exists like in MMA. They don't book Brock Lesnar versus GSP. They just don't. You know what I mean? Now, you, we would all pay to see it, but eventually you, you get into the freak show aspect and their business is based on reality. So, you know, I think we would lean more towards that. So you think size is still important for a star? Like you want a, a champion on top who's a, a big guy, not necessarily. Well, you can s- still do maybe a Rey Mysterio story here and there, but I think conflict-wise, I think I think if you're going to build divisions or build, um, if you look at it on paper, it just I think it's just what you look at it. And I'm not trust me, I'm not a size guy. I'm not saying everyone's got to be six ten. I just simply you base the conflict on what the human eye sees and the story you tell. And by the way, you can tell. The Ray going for the title, but you have to you have to do the story right. And trust me, I was there for the booking of that hot garbage, hot dumpster mess, you know. And it was just based upon Vince's look of that. And trust me, I'm not saying it's everyone's got to be the great colleague. Trust me, I'm not saying that either. It's just it's just the the genre of that. And I just think that's that MMA's book the same way. You know what I mean? Like, and you have to look at what's actually drawing money. 
and I'm not going to get into the intergender fight stuff, and I'm not going to bring that up. But you have to look at what what we bought. We bought a brand based around legitimate world title matches. Do you think it's a, a challenge for people when they're understanding your vision of the brand versus people who want to put it very narrowly into the what will an NWA promoted live event look like? It's very hard, and that's why I'm happy to discuss it so everyone's very clear. So they're not – like everyone thought we were going to put out this giant television announcement on October 1st. That's why we we would have had this, the story come out on the 1st, but it was a Sunday. You know what I mean? Like like we want to be very clear and transparent with this. That's why Billy wanted to talk about the Anthem thing because we didn't want it to come out in some byline leaked by somebody at Anthem six months from now that's spun in a different way. We want to be transparent on why we're doing it. We did not want to do an invasion storyline. We wanted to place the brand in their universe, separate from their impact band, side by side, offer our services and build our brand non-exclusively, meaning like they didn't have ownership in it, but offer a a, a deal that was mutually beneficial. Very similar to the Marquez idea, just on a different uh, stratosphere. Do you want to speak about some of the other companies in America and North America right now or is it, in terms of pros and cons of what's going for them? Um, would you be comfortable doing that? I, I mean, I, I think you can just sort of look at numbers. So like like the Flow Slam deal is the perfect example. And, you know, I think everything is in public domain about that deal. You know, I feel like that deal – both sides thought they were going to get something out of it that they didn't get. No, I don't. I was part of zero discussions. The only discussions I've ever had with either side of them was when I was doing the Galloway documentary, and it was very clear. This is what I want to do. I'm not going to monetize it, meaning I'm not going to put it for sale. So I'm not going to be making money. I want to release it as a this, you know. And if anything happens beyond that, I will come back to you for a business discussion. You know, they had non-exclusive rights to run it on their service, which they never did. Um, but obviously, now knowing the timeline of what's happening, they had much bigger. Uh, fish to fry. Um, But I I think you have to look at the business decision because, great, you put all this stuff behind a paywall and I feel like, you know, and and poor Gabe, you know what I mean? Like he had a promotion that was being um, linked with WWE, but all the content was behind a paywall and they were putting out great videos and I had many discussions with him about how to garner attention, but it's his business to do. I, I had no financial stake in it. But other companies... Like, well, like, like Lucha Underground, it, it's, it's so intriguing to me because you have the idea of let's put together a television program, let's repackage to all these people, let's you know combine and, and try to market in this certain you know El Rey is a very interesting network in itself. Yes, but it, it's a challenge to say whether this experiment has been net net good or you know just a big money hole for them in, well, in all right ways. El Rey was the last cable network to launch, right? Essentially, yeah, I'm sure yeah, there's I mean, been, I, there, you know, some other, you know, rebranding of the Golf Channel or something. But, like but that. what I'm saying it's, is, is it's yeah. the last new one to launch. I think if you look back at that, you go, hmm, maybe they should have been a digital platform. I, and I don't know, I don't know the money and economics. I do understand what they spent on Lucha because you just look at it on the screen. It looks amazing. I'd love that show, but at the cost, you know what I mean? It's a show that airs in front of ninety thousand people, right? With 150 maybe at the peak. On a, on a channel not a lot of people get, and they, you know, it took two years to get on Netflix. So think about it. So some of the stuff that got on Netflix this last year was three years old, you know, and it's fine. It, like it's great to discover it, but they're not touring. They, they are a single stream business. Now, if they would have made deals with the guys financially differently, that could allow them. Like it's it's the Game of Thrones problem, right? You know, Game of Thrones is so expensive that they ha- it's takes two years to do a season, and it's too expensive to do more often. How do you brand build that moving outside of it? Now, 
that kind of shows a supernova and, you know, available, you know, people flock to it. But financially, it's not a 52 week year show. And they understand that. But Netflix, look at what Netflix is spending. They don't just have Game of Thrones. They have 36 original like shows go up there all the time. Like, yeah, where did this one get made? You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. It's, the Marco Polo is my favorite example. It was this incredible investment they made for Netflix and it yeah. was a huge bust. And in fact, it pretty much convinced them that instead of doing mega investment projects, they're better doing the old model of let's do, you know, 10 at a million a piece rather than one at 10. Yes. And I think I think their data, I think their data. Data proves it. You know what I mean? Like they're they're a data driven company. Like, <clears throat> like like I've I've talked to people that go to work there, and you know it's an interesting approach. You know, go listen to the Reed Hastings interview. It's with uh, I think it's called Masters of Scale. I know it's not a wrestling podcast, everybody. And if you've gone two hours into this thing, I, you know, please send me an email and say I actually listened to all two hours. I'd be really interested. You um, would be shocked at our our listenership. Every week, I think I'm going to burn them out. And the longer we do a podcast, the higher our listens are. And I'm not sure if it's because they have to re-sync to the podcast to finish it or whether it's it's actually, you know – correlated with content value yeah. like you talk well, longer because you're you have better content well that's i mean here's another example of, a, of an industry that hasn't improved the podcast analytics how is it possible we were about what 11 years in the podcast that you don't know how long somebody listens how they listen where they get where they like like think about it. like you, the bill the business that youtube built uh, laid against the podcast business yeah you would think apple with itunes would have all that data no like that's it blows my mind and like the fact that if if you want to clip a piece of this podcast and send somebody, how do you do it? Is there an easy way? No. That's I mean, like think of like that's what I bring up these ideas because you know the world doesn't need more wrestling podcasts. It needs more ways to share the really good stuff on these podcasts. And go back to the Cornette thing. Like he takes his stories, makes them searchable. So I may not be interested in the fantastic story, but I might be interested in the Bruiser Bruiser Brody story. And I don't want to have to dig through all of it. And um, I don't even know how I forgot this this thing. Um, but um, like that's the point is is like all this has to good ideas have to be mined out and just don't do stuff for the sake of doing stuff because that's how they did it. And like, I, maybe it's on Lucha. I don't even remember. But there's a lot of you have to look at several. And that's the thing is is when you're starting, isn't it funny that the oldest wrestling brand in the world is actually a startup? It's just like we're we're literally a startup. I'm in my guest bedroom. Um, you know, somebody at Randy House is like, well, where will the NWA office be? And I held up my phone. It's right here. <laughs> this is the office now. Why do I have uh, – listening to the Crockett thing, you know, what killed Crockett? In 87 when he bought UWF and he moved the company to Dallas because they wanted to make movies. You, you, when, you, when you go away from the core business – and this is why I'm happy to talk about it because I, I, I'm blown away by the, the negativity towards me by certain people. And I'm happy to have any discussion with anybody about the business. And if you're telling me that – the NWA needs to have 30 territories because that's where you're going to get talent f- from. I don't need 110 talents who have terrible, who don't know how to exist and create content in this market. Honest, I don't want to comment on people's matches. You know what I mean? Like, by the way, work rate doesn't, doesn't move business forward. Characters do. You know what I mean? Like, like conflict in characters. People hated the boogeyman, but the boogeyman moved metrics. He moved ratings, interest, and stuff. Now, was he a huge hit? No, but he he fit a model of what we were doing in 2005. And you just have to make a decision on each each person individually and each idea individually. So speaking kind of with that and talking about, you know, 
models that are evolving or not evolving. TNA going up to Canada with Anthem. Uh, I don't know if you how well you know Ed Nordholm and how many interviews you've listened to him. It's interesting to hear someone who's coming in from kind of more of an MMA perspective in the telecommunications and media industry and being put in the world of pro wrestling and just kind of that juxtaposition of how difficult it is to kind of make sense of all the characters and the people and the players and the history. Yeah, and, it's, you know, I've I've spoken to Ed on four or five occasions. The, the day that, you know, the day that Jeff Jarrett was, was uh, relieved of his duties – we were supposed. I'm still in the TNA Fantasy Football League. I was actually just checking my team, make sure it was well optimized for me to get my ass kicked today. Um, and you know, there's a league full of TNA people, so we were supposed to go to Jeff Jarrett's house, but we didn't. We went to the studio. So literally, that's the first time I met Ed in person. I've spoken to him on the phone a couple times, and Ed is a very smart businessman. You know, the, the wrestling business, and you've studied it forever, worked in it, known people in it, really studied it. It is a very complex business because it is based upon the work and the work doesn't begin or end at the curtain either way. You know what I mean? Like and that's why, again, we're being transparent in our approach. So we're, we're not promising a, a television deal because one, that would be silly. And two, it, it takes work and all this stuff. And I, I wish I could tell everybody all the different discussions we've had, but that's why we're taking a patient approach. This is when, when Billy mentions 20 years, it means he's willing to spend his own money for 20 years to do this right, not just to do it so we could uh, it can look good on some network that people aren't going to take seriously. Um, Ed is very smart and he understands like if you knew the messes he cleaned up business wise. And the smart thing that he did for Anthem to end up with – I mean what was, what's the most valuable thing of, of the TNA brand a year ago today? The library. You know, the name sure as heck was nothing that – I mean, Jesus, they did, a, they did a tap dance on that thing after we left. You know what I mean? Like they basically said if you watch this product before uh, uh, March 1st, it, it was the worst product you've ever seen. You know what I mean? Like, well, crap, I'm watching it. What does that say about me? But, you know, the, the, he was able to uh, – clean up all the messes he's a very smart business guy now i haven't been there for any discussions that he's had with any people that he's worked with to understand his wrestling thing i just know the business discussions we've had and you know he's very upfront very transparent and been very good to talk to and obviously billy talks to him a lot more than i do but again in all the dealings you know he's very he's very upfront so in the wrestling business i i I can't say how that works with with the brother brother culture um you know, and, and that's and, and just to add in the SI piece, uh, Billy says that he speaks to Ed uh, once, if not twice a week. Yeah. And and, you know, but I think that's I think it's important you talk to people. I talk to I talk to people in every company. And I think to, to, to I think it was Brandon's point about like you have to you have to talk to people. You can't you cannot be an island. There is no singular genius in any business. You just there isn't. And I love Paul Heyman to death. He's not a genius. And I think he would admit that because if you look at the history of ECW, he drew from everybody around him. And I'm the same way. Like, I love talking to, like, I love talking to the Young Bucks. I love talking to Cabana. Do I talk to them enough that I wish I could be in business with them? I wish I was. But they have their own business. You know what I mean? I'd love to do business with them. I'd love to do business with anybody smart that wants to not just buck the system to buck the system, but to, to make themselves available to have a higher upside. I, took I a- I'm. 
I'm going to say I, I got to organize this WrestleNomics TEDx conference soon where we just uh, get the speakers happy. in and talk about building their brands and, you know, get those people in the room there who need to hear these messages who, you know, I think there's a lot of people who haven't given it as much thought of what they themselves can do and how accessible pro wrestling is more accessible than it ever has been to people of all stripes and places because you can come in as a podcaster, as a writer, as a an ideal pitcher, as an indie wrestler and you can build a brand in ways that previously was impossible. The, the, the amount of access, again, I'll go back to my 1990 story of how I met Dutch Mantel on Prodigy, you know, under the name Wayne Cowan and his wife, Kathy, you know, they, they didn't have to talk to this. I think I was 15, you know, this 15 year old kid who was like asking all these questions and said, yeah, send us this, send us tapes. You know, they didn't have to do it. And the fact that anybody can email me and, 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 it's so funny because there's a lot of people will say a lot of negative things and they don't tag you and then it's, oh, you're doing vanity searches. Why wouldn't you? Technology makes it available. And it's funny, like, these people, like, like I wish I could have talked to Vince McMahon or I remember writing a letter to Eric Bischoff when I was 16 or 17 years old or, uh, or when I was in college, like, I'd love to work for you. And here's why. Like, you know, like, I wish he would have had a Twitter then that I could ask questions. Some of the questions I get are funny and some people, like, that's why, like, it's so funny in the last four months, almost on a daily basis, like who has questions like legitimate ask me. And if you don't want to ask in public, you know, my, my, my DMS are open. And- Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for four 99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi or seven up all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 